Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. As I've shared with you uh, earlier in some of my Twitter feed, social media, and Facebook, um, we're going to be doing a podcast series. This is episode one of that podcast series. And we're going to begin by really looking at um, what are systems, uh, what is systems thinking, uh, what is a military industrial complex, innovation, uh, the journey as an immigrant, uh, for me from India to the United States, education. Uh, but really we're going to cover a number of topics. And um, this will hopefully be the beginning of a series of podcasts we'll do, which will go into any one of those topics is more depth. But I think um, going into uh, each of these topics, but giving sort of the journey that I've gone through, through what I call growing up in India, then immigration, then education, and then innovation, really is a good way to start. Um, in, in, in sort of supporting uh, this in a conversation manner, I also have Marcelo Guadiana. Marcelo is a um, senior at UMass Amherst. Yep, or UMass Boston. I'm sorry, UMass Boston yeah. in uh, political science and double major in political science and economics. And um, Marcelo has gone through a number of the documents on the invention of email. And so he's going to, you know, uh, hopefully uh, be a good... Uh, uh, way of having a conversation here. So, yep. um, Marcel, I'm going to just sort of start with sharing my journey, you know, in India. Yeah, definitely. Um, look, I uh, was born in India, and I was born in India at a time when there were two different Indias. In fact, probably 10 different Indias or 100 different Indias uh, long before, it, you know, it went through all the uh, modern, you know, process that, yeah. that we see today. When were you born again? I was born in 1963, December 2nd, 1963. Interesting enough, you know, I was born on December 2nd. My uncle, who's also named as Shiva, was born 25 years after before me. And I have a nephew whose name is Shivaji, who was born yeah. 25 years after me. So three Shivas in the family. And what does Shiva stand for again? A lot of people don't Shiva know. Is, a, uh, is a god of creation and destruction. He's a very interesting uh, figure because if you look at him, he has a trident in his hand. He also meditates. He lives in a graveyard when he meditates as an ascetic, but he also lives in heaven on Mount Kailash. So he tra traverses the underworlds as well as, as well as the heavens. It's very much like Hermes, the character in Greek mythology, okay. Mercury. So he, yeah. some people view him as a god of communication and also as a god of medicine. And it's yeah. very interesting sort of how my life has mirrored some of those two archetypes. Yeah, definitely. But uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I guess for me, my journey also begins even further than India, probably in Burma. And then the reason that is so is my uh, father grew up in Burma. In fact, he was born there. And, and that story even goes a little bit further. You know, when I was growing up in India, I remember my great-grandfather. So I, I saw my great-grandfather as an amazing guy. Um, he was, uh, in some ways, to me, God incarnate, and I'll, I'll explain why. He was a guy who grew up, uh, you know, you know, India has a caste system. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with that. India has a caste system. We were considered low caste untouchables. My great grandfather, when he was 13 years old, wanted to make his fortune. I mean, they were very poor. They'd live along the side of the river, and eat um, certain. Uh, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables that would yeah. grow in the river. And the caste system was way worse back then, right? This is like... Yeah, obviously way worse. Yeah, you know, yeah. my mom talks about it when she'd go to the well, they would chase her away like shu shu sudra. Sudra is like the N-word okay, well. in India and try to chase her away. 
uh, you weren't you could only go to the well after the upper castes had taken their water so it was totally talk about uh you know segregation it yeah. was at its worst so my great-grandfather at the age of 13 decides he wants to make his fortune in those days this is in the 1800s late 1800s early 1900s people went to burma burma was where entrepreneurs went you know traders went or oh, yeah. people wanted to make their fortune so he went asked his younger brother for money to go on that slave ship um his older brother oh, yeah. uh, on what's called one of these ships not a slave ship um so his own brother wouldn't give him any money so yeah. he said on that day he spit on the ground in front of his brother and he said, you're no longer my brother. <laughs> and he got on an, on an indentured uh, uh, slave ship. What that yeah. means is you're basically an indentured servant yeah. and you have to work off your bond over a period of three to five years sometimes for in repayment back for that trip from India to Burma. And if you look, it isn't that far. Wow. So, so three years. Three to five years. Wow. Okay. So he gets on the ship and he... And, and you have to work on the ship too. Yeah. And uh, it turns out the ship's captain was so impressed by his honorable work, his dedication, he let him out of his bond. He said, I've never seen a guy like this. He's such a <laughs> good human being. Yeah. So my uh, grandfather in Burma does anything he can to make money. He makes what's called dosas, which are the Indian pancakes on the street. He um, cleans houses. Uh, anything he can many probably had six six seven jobs yeah. and little by little he becomes a uh, uh, he, you know he, he gets his own land he starts farming and he becomes a pretty uh, substantial farmer in India more and more land he yeah. owned I think at one point thousands of heads of cattle is he still considered the very uh, lowest caste well uh, this was in 1900s oh okay this was I mean early, early late 1800s early I mean I'll come back to that caste question yeah, but this yeah. was but in Burma my grandfather and my grandmother are also uh, born there. And he marries, my great-grandfather marries his wife. And um, my grandfather, not my great-grandfather, was, I think, uh, 15 years old when he married my grandmother who was 14, which you would call almost child marriage <laughs> yeah. in those days. But they had my father when, they were, when, he, when my grandmother was 14. So my dad is born... Uh, to basically two teenage parents, yeah, that's which insane. was normal in those days. Yeah, that was normal yeah. in India. Wow. Okay. And my my dad owned was the first son of the first son of my great grandfather, which is like a, a lot of in, in the Indian tradition, the, the son of the son, the first son has a lot of burdens on them, plus a lot of honor too. Yeah. Now my great grandmother wasn't having any more kids. One year went by, two years. Now in those days, a woman was supposed to have lots of children. You know, eight, nine children was, you know, was normal. Yeah. My grandmother was one of 16 children, the only daughter, <laughs> okay? 15 brothers and uh, my grandmother, my dad's mother. Yeah. So uh, time goes by, it's three years, four years, and um, my grandmother isn't having any more kids. So my great-grandfather, it was a tradition, was going to marry another woman to my grandfather. Now, my dad was deeply upset. So was my grandmother. Now, Burma is known for two things, if you don't know. Cobras and Buddhism. Like, there's a stupa, a Buddhist monastery everywhere. Like, um, and cobras. <laughs> okay? why, why cobras? It's just filled with cobras. Oh, okay. I mean, it's, it's snakes everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, just, uh, so, my 
dad and my grandmother, my, they're very, my grandmother's a deeply spiritual person, prayed and meditated. Um, they start going to different temples to pray for a son or a, another child to be born. So my great-grandfather doesn't marry another woman to my grandfather. Yeah. Eventually they go to a Buddhist monastery and they see this Buddhist monk. And he gives my dad a coin, inside of it a mantra, mantra is a word that you repeat, and he tells my father, um, don't worry, start meditating. On this day, you will have a brother born to you, December 2nd. Yeah. So my dad was, you know, probably three or four, whatever his age was, and he very devoutly starts meditating and praying. My, my grandmother would tell me how, how, in a very devout way, my father would sit in front of the deities and meditate. And so on uh, December 2nd, as this uh, monk had predicted, my uncle is born, whose name is Shiva. Wow. And that coin, my uncle still wears on his chest because my father gave him, it's, it's, and inside of yeah. that still is that mantra. Um, so th the reason I shared that with you was my dad, so I grew up in this very deeply spiritual family. My great-grandfather would do all these, what are called um, penances for others, right? My great-grandfather's view was very frugal, but he helped everyone, particularly when it came to education. He would give whatever money if anyone needed money for education. But when it came to running a household, he was extremely frugal. So this is all in Burma. Yeah. Now, um, at the, what you may know is um, Burma was a center of World War II in, in the Far East. Okay. It was where the Japanese and the Americans were the center. Rangoon was at that point the, the capital of Burma. So World War II breaks out and Burma becomes a hell zone. Yeah. I mean, destruction everywhere. Um, so here my grandfather, great-grandfather went with nothing, started accumulating wealth, um, you know, owned land, um, you know, all through sheer hard work. And overnight, all of this starts disappearing. The sense bombs, etc. They're living in foxholes, bombs dropping everywhere. I mean, literally bombs. They didn't know if they were going to live or die. A lot of people get bitten by cobras. Okay. Now, so there's a higher chance of people getting bitten now. Well, why? Well, yeah, because yeah, yeah. I mean, it's chaos there. My great grandfather would also meditate and pray, and he had my father go to a tree, which there were two cobras living, and he would have him leave two eggs and as a penance because remember uh, Shiva has a cobra around his neck which we can talk about what, what that means in the, right as, a, as an offering to the gods so no one in their home ever got bit you know that, that's a mysticism behind yeah. this um, so the uh, um, family you know is dealing with this overnight my dad was saying people would be walking around barrels of money inflation was skyrocketing so my dad saw Overnight, a stable economy go to hell, how money became devalued. And my great-grandfather had this idea that he felt, let's all collect these sacks. They said these sacks, which were where you store potatoes, and they were everywhere. You know, the, um, they're made of cloth. Okay. My great-grandfather had this view that um, when the war would end, those sacks would be worth a lot. because you need, So they just collected all these sacks. <laughs> no one would think about doing Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, they end up being, that's when, when, as the war ended, that's when they started, they were able to cash that out and go back to India. Wow. And they literally were going to walk back to India. If you look at Burma, is you have to walk up to Assam, 
and you have to come back down. And a lot of people did that route. My great-grandfather used to again meditate and pray. He had a vision that if they did that, they'd all die. And in fact, that's what happened. A lot of people died because there was a big bombing there. So they ended up taking a boat back to India, walked, you know, some part of it, and, to, and they come back to their same village where my great-grandfather left. So my great-grandfather said, I left with nothing, I made a lot, and I came back with nothing. And he would say, you can judge the character of a person by how they deal with those ups and downs in life. Yeah. So my dad now comes back at the age of, I think he was 10 or 11, had never been exposed to a book, because this is, you know, he'd, he'd gone through Burma during World War II, and he, and he has to start studying and learning from scratch. How old was he when he was? I think he was around ten or eleven. Okay, right. So he remembers the war. Oh, he remembers everything. I mean, he we we should talk to him, and he'll tell you details. Yeah. You know? Wow, that's crazy. Um, he he would say that they would literally be in foxholes, and people would shit in their pants. When he talks about shitting in their pants, you it means he still remembers that. Yeah, yeah. People would because it's it's scary when yeah. these huge. I mean, I can't even imagine it. Every, yeah, I can't drive. imagine. But that. my great grandfather would lead leave out the foxholes and stand. He said like a pillar and look at these planes, and he would say, no harm will come to you. He was a very devout person, yeah. total believer in God, and believed in the golden rule, um, et cetera. So my great-grandfather comes back, uh, the family comes back, everyone comes back to India, and they have to basically start from scratch. And, um, and that home, which is a home, so I grew up in Bombay as a kid, very cosmopolitan, crazy, wild city with every religion, and I also grew up in that small village in deep South India, yep. in that same home, which is still there. So, so my, journey, my life in India was growing up with these amazing stories, meeting my great-grandfather, who, by the way, brought up my father. My grandfather was, in some ways, a, a young teenager. Yeah. He was out there banging other women. Yeah. You know, he was like a Romeo. My dad said, if you tied a sari to a, a tree, he'd go bang that. And that was normal for a 14, 15. Well, he was, he was, yeah. he married, he was so young and he was, he yeah. was a good looking guy. He was like, you know, he's a tough. But uh, that was normal to get married at that age. At 14, I think in, the, in those days it was. It was. In, yeah. In, yeah. In those days, people got married, you know, after puberty, et cetera. So they ended up having seven kids. My grandmother. You have to grow up real fast. <laughs> yeah. So they grew up and then um, my uh, mother's side, my mom was one of nine kids and we'll talk about her, but so you have my dad's family uh, grew up in Burma, came back, and you have to understand they were political too. In Gandhi, remember the Indian independence movement. India is not independent. This yeah. is pre nineteen forty seven. Okay, so this is the, when uh, Gandhi was around, right? Yeah. So the Indian independence movement was just starting. Yeah. Now, my family did not like Gandhi. My dad's side, they saw him as really? like okay. yeah, and 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 this is the interesting. Everyone thinks Gandhi is his hero. There was another guy called guy, an Indian leader called Subhash Chandra Bose. Subhash Chandra Bose, S-U-B-H-A-S, Chandra Bose, like both speakers. Subhash Chandra Bose was a very different leader. He wanted, he was an Indian nationalist, a patriot. He said India never went through its nationalist cycle. We should kick out the British. Like America had a good nationalist revolution. India never had a nationalist revolution. And he was organizing the Indian National Army to kick out the British out of India. Okay. So what was the difference between him and Gandhi? Gandhi uh, was essentially an apologist for British imperialism. And okay. I'll, I'll talk more about this. Yeah. I mean, it's, we can do a whole discussion, but Gandhi was essentially uh, parachuted in by the British 
to quell the uprising of Indian nationalism. There was a deep Indian nationalism movement starting to build in the 20s. People are saying, wait a minute, we have a right to a nation, right? Uh, why are these white men running over us? And there was a nationalist movement starting. Yeah. And by 1947, by the way, the British had decided to leave India. People don't know this. They had realized India was too hard to manage. Remember, the British were running all these empires, and yeah. it, it's very costly, like having mili That's why they, they, you know, they got out of America because they wanted to focus their energy on India. They, wanted ex they exploited America. Now they wanted to move the exploitation to India. Yeah. There was more wealth they saw in India. So they were fighting battles on many fronts. Uh, Indian uprisings were taking place. And in fact, the, the document that India has with, I mean, Britain, it's not called the Declaration of Indian Independence. You know what it's called? No, what is it called? It's called the Transfer of Power. <laughs> okay? Okay. And it was a transfer of power. That was, so India never, in my opinion, never got independence in 1947. Yeah. It got a transfer of power from white men with crowns to brown men with white hats. And they flew in this guy Gandhi, you yeah. know, talked some interesting stuff to be the person who talked this nonviolent nonsense, right? To serve, to transfer. And he was an Anglophile. He loved the British. Yeah, that's interesting. He loved to bootlick the British. I mean, he thought they were the greatest thing. They blah, 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 right? Yeah. Now, Subhash Chandra Bose is very different. He was a nationalist. He believed India needed a national identity. And so in Burma, Subhash Chandra Bose would go raise money because there was a lot of Indians. My family, even though they had whatever money they earned, they gave all of it to Bose. So Their this goal, guy was pretty famous. He's very famous, yeah. yeah. Okay. In fact, his movement was building and suddenly his plane disappears and crashes. And people say that Gandhi and Nehru, who were uh, essentially Anglophiles, Nehru became the first prime minister, Gandhi's considered the founder of India, they blew up Bose's plane. Really? Yeah. Okay. Now, it's interesting because Nehru was banging Mountbatten's wife. <laughs> Mountbatten was the uh, the emperor of India, whatever the chancellor of India. He was running India. Oh, okay. That's and Edwina a very good reason to kill him. <laughs> and Edwina Mountbatten was banging Jawaharlal Nehru. Well-known okay. fact. And Nehru becomes the first prime minister of India. So this whole thing was orchestrated. Yeah. So India never got Indian independence. But the point is, my parents were fighters. They weren't Gandhiites. Yeah. They were uh, I, my dad's side of the family. Well, there's a lot of things people have no idea about Gandhi, right? I mean, there's like the whole history behind him that they have no yeah, idea. Yeah, we we'll like do a whole series on that. Yeah. I, 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 we could do a whole podcast. One episode we should do is how one man sold the country. Yeah. The, wow. life, the true life of Mahatma Gandhi and how India suffered um, for that. Uh, Gandhi was very much into the caste system. He supported the caste system. I didn't know that. Yeah. He, uh, um, you know, he, the reframing of Gandhi as a saint um, is, is not what he is. But Bose was a fighter, a warrior, who was yeah. building an elite force of the very smartest Indians, warriors. And how old was um, was he? I think he must have been his 30s, 40s. 30s, 30s. He was a young guy. That's when he so, died. Yeah, when, when his plane blew up. Yeah. It disappeared. No, no one even... And there's all this folklore that Bose is still alive. And he's... <laughs> you know, he's in a, anyway, so, um, so, so that's the environment. So I grew up, by the way, my dad telling these stories to Sebastian Lerbo, etc. Um... Uh, and when I grew up in India, my grandmother, when she got back, right, here's a woman, and they get, got back into farming. So they grew cotton, they grew peanuts, uh, subsistence farmers. Yep. Uh, my earliest memory of my great-grandfather is this man standing six foot two, skinny, ripped, muscular, <laughs> and at the age of like in his 
late 80s, uh, you know, working out in the fields. Yeah. He lived a very simple life. He'd get, wake up at four in the morning. He would drink this water, rice water, which had a lot of B vitamins, and he'd go to work, um, go to bed early. You know, he'd make his own food. Very, and he'd li- he would literally sleep on a, I mean, he was married, but he would sleep on a, a bench, a hardwood bench, and he'd meditate and pray. Uh, it's almost like an ascetic's life, uh, truly devoted to something bigger, making yeah. sure. Um, uh, when he died, Marcelo, uh, he called everyone together, and he said, I'm leaving now. And he said, um, everything, uh, I, I have no debts. He said, if you need money, it's over there in that locker. Uh, we owe no one any uh, everything. We don't owe anyone anything. Yeah. He lived essentially a perfect life. He, this is what he's saying the day before. Or? No, no. And he said, "I'm leaving now." Oh, okay. And he went into uh, what we call a, a prayer lotus position, and then he left. Wow. Okay. And so they say some of the you can judge someone. My great grandfather used to say by how they die. You know the essence they leave when they die. Do they leave with a smile on their face? And by the way, most people shit when they die. Nothing. So he was considered like a saint. Um, and to me, as I say, if there was a God, if I've ever seen it, it was him in the sense of how he lived his life. Tr- pure truth, uh, a, a real sense of love for people. Uh, you know, not this namby-pamby love, but he, he, he walked the walk. That was my great-grandfather. So yeah. he's still one of my great, probably my greatest hero. Uh, so my dad was brought up by him. And so here's my dad in Mohur, which is a small village in deep South India. At the age of 10, 11, he has to start getting educated. Uh, the local school teacher is a, tr- uh, what I would call a true communist, you know, in, communist party in India was there. Yeah. And he educates my father under a mango tree. You know, the old style teaches him math and physics, first principles. So my dad could derive, my dad's an amazing mathematician and a chemist still and physicist. He could still derive everything because they had to, all they had was a chalk and a, a blackboard, you know, a little blackboard. So my dad eventually ends up becoming an engineer, which is unheard of that he pulled that off. He has six, seven other siblings. He educates us. In those days, the first son was responsible for educating everyone below him. So he has to make sure, and making sure everyone got married and settled is a huge responsibility. Yeah. So that was my dad's sort of thing. And I saw in that village, my grandmother, whenever I go to the village, I spent at least a third of my life there. She was a farmer, worked you know, 15, 16 hours a day in the fields. I mean, these weren't like, when I mean farmer, not, they're not owning factory farms. They're out there planting rice with leeches on their feet, you yeah. know, coming home, cooking, everything. But on weekends, my grandmother was a village healer. And this is not your typical grandmother, my grandmother, chewed tobacco and beetle stuff. She had tattoos all over her arms. Um, and uh, she would go into, she would channel uh, different uh, deities. Um, she would do deep prayers and uh, sadhanas, as we say it in Hinduism, sadhanas are deep penances, you know, like Jesus going and uh, fasting for 40 days. They would do these deep, deep uh, penances to really pay honor, homage to, to God. In the home of my grandmother's small house was every deity. I mean, you had Shiva, you had Lakshmi, you had Jesus. We in the Hindu uh, in Hindu culture, we consider Jesus a son of God. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. he is an avatar of God. We consider him as God. So uh, we call me Esudas, right? So I grew up on this very deeply spiritual environment. You know, two doors down was the Indian temple. Um, 
And my grandmother, you know, I'd lie on her lap as a kid and she'd tell me these most amazing epic stories. See, in the Indian tradition, you have these amazing mythologies of the great Ram, who was known as the most honorable uh, warrior, um, who was so honorable that the kingdom, uh, he was the first son, was supposed to be com coming to him. But his father had a mistress and he'd had another son with another woman. And, but, uh, and he had promised that woman the kingdom. Now, Ram could have fought for that, Rama, but because he was honoring his father, he, his father told him the mistake he had made, and Ram, Rama said, you know, father, you have made that mistake, but I'm your son, so fine, your, my half-brother could have the kingdom. And, the, and, and that uh, brother banishes Rama and his wife into the woods for 14 years. So Rama and Sita get banished into the forest, and then there's a whole epic called the Ramayana. It's an amazing story. Yeah. How Rama's wife gets stolen by an evil king in Sri Lanka, what's now known as Lanka. Rama has to fight, and he wins, and he comes back, and he's victorious. So, when did these stories uh, originate? Like, uh, in India, they go back thousands, thousands of years. Of years in in yeah. fact, they're, t they're seen as real stories. Yeah. Uh, Rama's closest friend was Hanuman, who's a monkey god, uh, who's an incarnation, who has Shiva's spirit in him. He's a fighter. And Hanuman helps... Ram win back his wife from this evil king. So, you know, I learned about loyalty, honor, right? Yeah. Um, uh, fealty, you know, doing what's always right. And, and my grandmother told me story after story like this. Um, so I, I grew up around these, you know, that's what my brainwashing was, you know? Yeah. If you want to think this story's uh, fighting for right and that there is something beyond this world yeah. and then you have to live a good life. Now, my mother grew up in a very different environment. You know, my mother uh, uh, grew up uh, also as an you know, untouchable, low-caste person. The father left the family, ran off with the maid, okay, when she was, I think, seven or eight years old. My mom loved her father. She said how her dad would tuck her in and, and tell her stories. And, um, and the maid was in the house. And, and now it's interesting, you know, in these cultures, people may have a mistress, but the father actually not only ran off, but married the maid. Yeah. Which was considered a love marriage. So in India, you had the typical marriage was you honored your family and it was an arranged marriage. Your family chose your bride and that was norm, right? Um, because you honored them. It was a perpetuation of your culture, etc. But the fact my grandfather left his wife and my mom was one of nine kids overnight and they literally lost their home. The, 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 the other, the nine kids were split up. I think five kids went, went with my grandmother and the other four went somewhere else. So it was a, and my they mom- They went with your dad or just somewhere else? Somewhere else, yeah, because they, they didn't have enough space. Uh, I think they were in school. Uh, some of them were in school, in boarding, uh, you know, some other school. I don't know what it was. But the point my, grand, my mother would tell me was it was such a shame. You see, divorce is unheard of in the Indian culture. Yeah. And not only does this divorce, the father runs away. So when she would go to school, people would say, do you have a father? And she would basically be completely embarrassed. Yeah, wow. So she grew up with this intense shame that she had done something wrong. But she said she decided that she was going to be one of the most good people, right? She, she said my father was, um, you know, he, he was led down the path of wrongdoing. And so she decided as a young, ki young kid that she was going to get educated, which was unheard of. A woman, low caste woman, like she wanted to not just get a college degree, but she wanted to get a graduate degree. Yeah, back then. It was, I, I well, first of all, women that, yeah. were supposed to just get married, and that's it. 
So my mom's older brother was a pretty incredible guy, smoked like a chain smoker, and he ended up uh, becoming an economist. And he loved his younger sister. My, my mother was the youngest daughter, and he made sure she did get educated. Okay. okay? So my mom gets educated, not only gets a bachelor's in math, but a master's in statistics. Statistics is a very difficult field. Yeah. And I think she's still to this day one of the only women or the few women who still graduated in that. So that was my mom, came from nothing, pure will to succeed. My dad, same thing. And then both of them met in Bombay because my mother's brother interviewed my father for a job. And he said, you know, are you looking for a good wife? And my dad tells a story that, you know, he was beating his head because he was coming of age to have a wife. And he said he, uh, his father had introduced him to an amazingly attractive woman. And another woman who was really wealthy, but not that good looking. And, uh, and not that smart. And then he met my mom, who was pretty good looking, but she was really bright. So he wanted to marry, he decided he was gonna marry my mother, but someone said, oh, do you know she comes from a broken family? Now that is like, that's like the curse of death. Yeah. So my dad's like, what the hell, I can't marry her. Like, it'll call shame on me. She comes from a uh, father Divorce, who left yeah, them. Yeah. A divorced family. I mean, this is like at a time when that scene, like coming out of the closet, yeah. you know, or worse than that. So his father, my grandfather, was quite nice. He goes, look, you cannot judge her by the sins of her father. Judge her for what she did. Look what she's gone through. Now, this was a big, big thing for my father to do. Yeah. Right? So it, this was your great-grandpa telling you. No, dad. my grandfather. Oh, oh My okay. grandfather. Sorry, grandfather. And, and my great-grandfather loved my mother. He loved yeah. her resilience how hard she worked so anyway my dad and my mom get married in bombay um they worked their butts off my mom became the head of the math department um at a at a school my dad became an engineer um to a guy that uh a guy called gopala singhani is one of the biggest industrialists of india so you have these two very interesting people total mutations yeah who meet get married and i come from that and when i was born uh, in Bombay, uh, it was an interesting journey because I, me and my 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 sister is older. She was born. My mom, uh, and uh, when my mom had me, my uh, there's some illness. No one, I still haven't figured out what it was. But my dad came to the hospital, convinced me and my mom were were going to die, and he made his prayers. In those days, you know, he was working. As a, in a manufacturing job, he had to leave. He couldn't. It was so you know, like he's making ends meet. Yeah. So he prayed and he had to go back to work. But he thought we were dead. And somehow, Your mom uh, being pregnant, right? Yeah. Well, no, but I was born. Oh, Apparently I was fine after I was born. It was after a few days later. He thought both of you were. Yeah. So, so it was an interesting, uh, that whole piece to hear that, right? So um, I guess what I'm trying to say, Marcelo, is the fact that I guess my parents met being even born <laughs> In that environment, right? Being born to those huge parents, probably one in a trillion, if you yeah. think about it. You know, two low-caste untouchables who meet came from these very tough backgrounds, right? So I grew up in Bombay. Um, you know, I was there until second grade, and I also grew up in this village. I had these two extreme worlds, Bombay yeah. City, uh, the back, uh, but the back of... Uh, 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 
where we uh, we were living in the city. Yeah. But then when my dad got an opportunity to come to the United States, he was invited by Unilever, which is one of the big consumer packaged goods companies, for training here. But and uh, when they when he came here, they found out that he actually could train them. He knew more than any of the engineers there, so they invited him to stay here. But my dad was very loyal to his boss and he said, I'm not gonna do that. He goes, I'll, have, I'll finish my tenure there, ask my boss for his blessings, and then I'll come. And his boss said, she, uh, Dure, you should go. My dad's name is Ayadure. My name's Shiva in India, by the way, you don't have last names, it's like the American Indian culture. Oh, There's I just a, a one okay. name. So my dad's name is Ayadure, and he told my dad he should come. And uh, so my dad decides to come to the United States, and he had to come first. And in those days, it was merit-based immigration. You had to submit your resumes, um, and then you got your green card and all that. We had to wait about a year, and when we were waiting about the year, we moved to a, a suburb of Bombay where the backwoods were a jungle. I mean a real jungle, huge yeah. snakes. I mean, so it was like Mowgli. I'd walk in the backyard. My next-door neighbor was loved animals. Uh, and it was thinking back. I mean, that's why when you walk in Indian woods, you're always looking. At, you're you're going to get bit, bitten by a snake. Yeah. Uh, and I still look at that when I walk in the woods. Here, I'm <laughs> thinking if a snake's going to get me. It's something deep. But that was the India I grew up in. And then a year later, my sister, me, and my mother came, and we we left India literally on my uh, seventh birthday, December second, 1970. We landed in the United States on December fifth, 1970. In those days, it used to take a long time to come. We went to London. Uh, it wasn't like a direct flight, yeah. right? And especially we, we we took the economy tickets. Yeah, long journey. Yeah, so that was so you're looking at we came to India 19, um, to the United States in 1970. So think about 1970. Vietnam War is going on. You have the counterculture movement, yeah. bell bottoms, hippies, drugs, um, and uh, you have this war raging in Vietnam. Yeah, this and is what you're introduced to. At this is what we're introducing, and we come from India to Patterson, New Jersey, yeah. which is another wild place. Okay. Ford Galaxies, huge, you know, have you ever seen those huge cars? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, predominantly all African-Americans. Okay. Um, and I start going to second grade. They're very tough. You know, people would pick on me because I was, no one had seen an Indian kid. Really? Yeah. How many Indian kid people to fight? do you think uh, were in Zero. School? Oh, you were the only one? I, only one. Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, my parents, were, again, were very much into education. My mom uh, uh, started going, was working at a mill uh, doing quality assurance testing. My dad was working at a company um, called ChemSpray, which was a company that used to do filling for cosmetics. He's a cosmetic chemist. And then my mom uh, would also start taking like three trains to start learning computer programming in those days. Was that a popular thing? Very new. Yeah. This concept like, of yeah. COBOL on big mainframes. Okay. So my mom was doing work, that, and then whatever money they made, then we moved to the next town called Clifton. Okay. Uh, Clifton, New Jersey. Uh, so second grade through fourth grade was in Clifton. And I grew up uh, uh, in a place where the, up, the landlord was from Italy. And he was very tough, you know, very tough landlord. But he taught me the landscape. Like I would mow the lawn, you know, and I would cut, you know, he taught me how to be do perfect work. I'd learned how to do some painting with him. My mom had Yugoslavian friends. I started doing, as a, you know, I think I started doing, um, learning painting, yeah. house painting. Um, and uh, the school was literally across the street. And then we moved from there to another home 
which was owned by another huge Italian, big fat Italian woman who had a dog on the second floor. And we had those wood stoves. We had no heat. You had to literally yeah. get coal. You're in another school again? No, no. Same okay, school. Same school yeah. different, uh, we moved to another house. Yeah. Rent was cheaper. Um, and then we moved to Persippany, New Jersey, between fifth grade to eighth grade. And that's where major things occurred to me because that's when um, uh, in fifth, between fifth and eighth grade, something important happened. In seventh grade, we moved, we moved to Persephone, and I uh, had a chance to go back to India in 1975. My, my grandmother, my dad's, my, my mother's mother was dying. Okay. And uh, um, so we went back, me and my mom went back, and that's when I realized the difference between America and India. Yeah. When I go back, I go back to the village and I see, oh my God, my, I thought it was normal people. My, my grandparents literally lived in this one building home. My aunt lived in a hut, literally a hut with thatch roof. Um, and so in my whole family, you could see the spectrum of diversity of incomes. Yeah. And, um, and at, now I'm 12, I decided, you know, something is not right in this world, that I wanted to make a difference. That it didn't seem right why some people had a shitload of stuff. Yeah. And other people had nothing. And yeah. they had to suffer so much. And so this 12-year-old kid, as I'm... So, you know, I was there, I think, three months. And I'm leaving. And I stayed with my grandparents because I had a deep connection with my grandmother. And I'm leaving. They come to the train station. I can still remember the scene. I'm in the... And these were caboose trains. We're talking about old caboose trains you had to take to the village. You'd have to take the caboose train... And you take a cycle rickshaw and a bullock cart, okay, to get into the village. Yeah. And my grandparents come to see me off and they're crying and I realize how deeply these people loved me and how much they had suffered, right? From yeah. Burma to here to create my father, right? All the, I mean, you just sort of, and I realized that I was going to do something significant, that it would be, like, I was so fortunate. Yeah. Like, these people came from nothing. And this is when you were around 12 years old, 12 right? years yeah. old. And before I left India, my... Grandparents trained me. They they gave, they gave me diksha. It's called where they give you a mantra, a charged word, and and they taught me how to meditate. And that's when I learned that um, you could basically the meditation is you learn how to visualize. You have a mantra. You visualize uh, stuff in what's called your third eye. It's one of the siddhis they call it, one of the things that you learn to create what you want. It's it's a um, uh, so I learned how to do this. I, I went into a total faith. At the age of 12, really. At the age of 12. So I started meditating. So when I came back, my mom said, you need to do something significant. And in the high school I'd moved to, again, we were the only, in a junior high school, I was the only Indian kid, me and my sister. And my mom said, you need to, you know, you should excel in mathematics. Like, be the number one kid. So the teacher I had in eighth grade had a system. Very nice, amazing teacher. He'd been there... Uh, 30 years and he gave you and I uh, because I was good I got into the advanced math course and um, the way he laid out the course was he had the standard curriculum which he teach you every but then when you did problems you could go beyond those problems and you could start learning on your own and I knew there was a math award given every eight in that eighth grade class yeah so I would by the way I was not just a nerd I, I, I played soccer I was pitcher on the baseball team. Yeah. So I'd come home at around 8 p.m. from practice, and then I'd study from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. I mean, I did shitloads of problems. Yeah. So this is like advanced math, right? Yeah. So, but he had the standard curriculum, and then he gave you these advanced problems. Yeah. I was doing nonlinear programming, which you only do as a PhD. 
at MIT oh, in operations crazy. research. And you, you were enjoying doing this? this I loved like it. I loved it. It was competitive. Yeah. So I blew away everyone. So the um, end of the year comes, and uh, and I have been visualizing in my meditation that I, there would be a audience, and I would go up to the stage and I receive this award. And I swear to God, Marcelo, that exact same thing plays itself out, really, like you, a movie. Did you know what award it, uh, it was? The math be? award. The math. Oh, yeah, the and math I award, yeah. visualized the whole thing. Yeah. So what was interesting was. Now my mom's the one who compelled me to win this, right? Yeah. And I did it many ways for her to honor her. Two days before the award ceremony, the graduation of eighth grade, which is junior high school ends, my mother gets into a massive accident. We thought she was dead. She was in the ICU, okay? Car accident? Massive car accident. Uh, Someone hit her from behind, all her teeth knocked out. It was very sad. Yeah. So me and my dad go to that ceremony and I had heard I'd won some award you know, they don't tell us like the Oscars. And uh, I go there and uh, Mr. Summer, who is the amazing teacher, he gets up and he goes, you know, typically every year we give the award to two students, the winner and a runner up. But he goes, this year, there is no runner up. He goes, Shiva, in my 32 years, Shiva blew away anything I've ever seen. And he goes, there is no runner up. And he gives me this award. I go up, it's a standing ovation. And I also won the science award because when you yeah. start doing good at one thing, I also won another award. And um, and the standing ovation, this is a visualization. I visualize the whole before. thing, yeah. everything. Yeah. It was like a movie was being played. It was, it was like I moved forward in time. Yeah. Now, when I'm, me and my dad are, it was sort of bittersweet because my mom wasn't there. We're leaving the auditorium and this, and this was also somewhat of a Jewish town. Um, and unfortunately, Jewish people have this thing, they're the chosen people of God. No one else is smarter. So, and, and the friend of mine was this kid, Eric Greenberg. And he, you know, he didn't work that hard. So Eric's mother comes running up to me angry. <laughs> and he starts screaming at my father, your son has done nothing great. This is while you're going through uh, your mom's car accident. Yeah, we're, and we're about to go to see my, yeah, yeah, we're leaving the auditorium. My son could have done that if he worked harder. And I was looking at this woman very like, like just shocked yeah. that she was so upset, jealous, jealous yeah. uh, that an Indian kid had done this. That, uh, and you could see that it was this. Talking uh, about racism, right? Like it, it's a form of racism. Yeah. And I grew up in a town where the Jewish kids, the parents would send their kids to Israel, and these kids would come back indoctrinated. We have to kill all the Palestinians. Yeah, and that they were the chosen people. Yeah. And you could see that. And I was very shocked by this. But not just shocked. I wasn't frankly shocked. I was like, this woman was childish. Yeah. Like that, it was even shocked. I mean, I still remember that scene. Okay. As much as I remember another scene when I was five years old in India, where I had a friend and I went to his home. And the mother says, you can't come in. You have to stand outside and I'll give you water in a different glass. And, and, and she said, you're sudra. Yeah, it's like the lower caste. Yeah, yeah, like the nigger word. Yeah. Okay. And um, and that's when I asked my mother, "What is this?" She goes, "Well, that's what we are." And she told me, but I that the 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 anger, the sadness I felt when I was five years old, it was a different kind of sadness. This time I felt sadness for this stupid woman. For her, yeah. For her, like, that's, yeah. Why did you know your son didn't work hard? Yeah. And wh <laughs> why are you yelling at my father when he brought me up to work hard? Yeah. Isn't you know I worked hard and you're screaming he was yelling at your father like, she was yelling at yeah, my father was, not, my son could have done 
better had he worked hard. Was she this mad is, at you as well? You think? Well, she was. Yeah, she, yeah. This is nothing. She was so upset. Yeah. I mean, think about that. Right. It, it's this great honor, and you get this. It's an interesting karmatic thing of my life. You'll see. So we go to see my mother after that, and we didn't even. You know, she was just happy, but she was in pain. She'd lost her front teeth. It's pretty sad. Yeah, it does sound sad. So that was eighth grade. Okay. Now that next year, we transfer to the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest school systems in New Jersey. So think about Patterson was pretty much African-American. Clifton was working class. Persephone was working class. Yeah. You know, uh, somewhat wealthy Jews. And then we go to Livingston, which is all predominantly Jewish. This is you kind of experience, experiencing the whole American, uh, the, the American dream. Pretty yes, much, right? Going exactly. The and ladder, then we go yeah. to Livingston and the homes are bigger. My parents, you know, had sort of whatever money they had, they bought a home, you know because they wanted to be in that better neighborhood. Yeah. It, it was known as the best school system. So my eighth grade teacher had written to the ninth grade teacher who turned out to be someone he went to college, the ninth, ninth grade principal. Okay. So in Livingston, it was ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, right? So ninth grade was still junior high school. And he said, Shiva's an extraordinary student. And the ninth grade, I had gone through all their math classes, advanced to the only class left for me was in the high school which was calculus, which you again take only in college. Yeah. It was an advanced placement calculus class. So I'm only whatever, I think 14 at that time. So the, um, the uh, because Mr. Summer knew Dr. Rowell, I mean, his names are coming back, uh, he respected him and they arranged a special bus for me <laughs> that would transport this kid to the high school. My sister was two years ahead of me in high school. Yeah. And, um, and I was, um, in the calculus class with seniors and I aced it okay wow. the number one student then but Marcel I, I, I just used to work my ass off man I used to do a ton of problems it wasn't like I was just smart yeah you understood I, um, I understood you had to work yeah and I would still meditate and I still knew how to do goal setting and I still do that to visualization, today. Visualization, yeah, goal setting. This is what I want to achieve. They've done studies on that. On huh? how, they've done studies on how important that is. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it, every goals. successful person I found out later does this. Yeah. So so I finished calculus, and this is now ninth grade. I'm 14 years old. It's a summer. There's no more math courses for me even in the high school level. So there's a very interesting independent study teacher that shows up. Um, who wants to help me? She organizes where I can study linear algebra on my own pace with a special high school teacher. And in the summer between ninth and tenth grade, something interesting happened. My mom was doing computer programming, and she had a coworker. My mom was working at in Newark at this medical school, it was known as University of Medicine and Dentistry. She had a coworker called Marty Feuerman, and Marty said Marty brings this little newspaper article from the Washington Square Times. He lived in Washington Square where New York University is, in Soho, yeah. what is now. And he said, hey, there's this professor at NYU who's going to select 40 students to learn computer programming at NYU. This was unheard of yeah. for young kids. At the 70s. In, in, in the 70s. In, yeah. and, and this is like 1977, 78, where a computer would fill a, you know, you know, a huge room, yeah. right? Massive. And 40 students were selected, but you had to be a junior uh, or a senior. Now, I'm between freshman and sophomore year, so I wasn't even eligible to apply. So I applied. Mr. Summer writes me a letter. Uh, Mr. Krimmel, who's my calculus teacher, and they said, we've never seen a student like this. Um, you know, there's 
you know, in 32. I mean, very amazing letters. So I get accepted out of one of the 40 kids uh, in the United States. And and this is, I'm 14. You, were you like interested in computer science or was this a thing you wanted to do? Well, yeah. yeah I mean, I want, I mean, I go to NYU and, yeah, the, and this was at the Koran Institute yeah. of Mathematical Sciences. This is like one of the most elite of the elite. This is like where the, the Putnam exam, like you have the Nobel Prize, there's a thing called the Putnams, okay. where the, like the Nobel Prize equivalents in math go. By the way, I don't know if you know, you know, there's no Nobel Prize given in math. You know that, right? Oh, I didn't know that. The reason is that I think Alfred Nobel's daughter ran away, eloped with a mathematician. So Alfred Nobel hated that, so there's no Nobel Prize in math. Just because he hated that? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> you give it in every other field. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, uh, so NYU is in the middle heart of New York City. Um, we live in Livingston. So my, mo- my dear mom would get, and you had to be there at 8 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m. for the first, and it was an intensive military, like Navy SEAL program. It was like during the summer when you were Summer, school, and you yeah. would learn seven, progr- six, seven programming languages, basic, snowball, COBOL, ArtSpeak, which is a graphical programming language, uh, PL1, Fortran, digital circuit theory, where we draw the circuits in those days, like chip design. So my mom would drop me off at the train station in Newark, you know, the PATH trains. Yeah, I do, yeah. And you take them all the way into, I think, uh, Bleecker Street, and you had to switch train to go into... So, and I did this as a 14-year-old kid. Unheard of. Parents are afraid to send their kids anywhere. Yeah. When I was taking that train back and forth, um, by the way, the first, second day when I took that train, I'm literally walking down Bleecker Street, and three guys come smashing through a window. They just stole <laughs> the jewelry. And cops start chasing. Now, this was this was New York. In those yeah, days. New York during those days is pretty dangerous. Yeah, it's pretty dangerous. And you walk now. through Washington Park. Yeah, massive amount of drugs. People say try before you buy. Now, as <laughs> this I'm is do- you, fourteen years old, fourteen years this. old. Wow, yeah, that's funny. And as I'm walking through, um, taking the train, you know, with my little, I'd have a little briefcase. Um, but I also played summer soccer. It yeah. wasn't just a nerd. Yeah, yeah. Um, this big black guy was watching this. His name was Jenkins. And he said, hey man, you shouldn't be doing this alone. And he ended up becoming my bodyguard for that whole summer. And he was a, he was a foundry worker. He worked in a bronze foundry. And he took me where he would actually, people would come up with molds. He would make the uh, these big molds. He would pour. It was pretty wild seeing molten bronze being poured. And people making these casts it was wild. Yeah. So he had no relation to the uh, the program at NYU. Nothing. It was just you, this you just random guy. He lived in Newark. Him. I mean, <laughs> most people probably you know in those days be afraid of him. But he ended up becoming my friend. We he used to come home for Christmas. Ended up becoming a great guy. You know, yeah, like a mentor kind of in a way. Yeah, more like this very loving friend yeah. who just wanted to make sure this kid wouldn't get hurt. Like he was yeah. a big brother. Um, so I graduated. So, it, it, so Henry Mullish was a professor who'd set up this program. He'd gotten, I think, an NSF grant for 40 kids. And this was an amazing course, man. I mean, you learned programming, intensive, and these were the best of the best yeah. students out of uh, New York's like Stuyvesant High School, you know, all over the country. And I graduated number one. In fact, I won an award there. You graduated number one. Out of those 40. Out of those 40. And, and that was denoted by the fact they had the honors. So you'll see the certificate says honors. And I also won, Henry Mullish in those days was very much into programming calculators. And one of the programming courses were, in those days you didn't have Photoshop, but we programmed beautiful artwork. And I did this amazing artwork. 
and I won an award also for that. And I still the artwork uh, we still have. Um, so you're like super competitive. Like, very competitive. Yeah. I I was super. I, mean, I was an athlete. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and I wanted to be number one because excellence. I, I figured, and I figured if you worked hard, you could achieve that. And what that's the only what did I believed in excellence. Yeah. That and I wanted to. I believed it was such an honor to have this because every time I came home, I had deep respect for my great grandfather. That's who I'd meditate to, and honor my grandfather. My mother, my father, you know, I honored them because I saw they came from nothing, Marcelo. Yeah. And I and every and when I and when I, I could not forget twelve years old, my grandparents crying and where they came from. I said, I have to do something significant. Yeah. That who else is given these opportunities? Like I don't have to like live in a hut. Yeah. I don't have to worry about being bitten by leeches and stuff, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, seeing that is so crucial. Like it really Yeah, my grandfather suffered. Yeah. He was an indentured servant, like like it was almost this level of I don't want to say guilt, but if I don't do greatness, that I'm just a leech. Yeah. Well, most Americans never get to see that, right? In the no, no. So, so I just saw myself like I would be a leech, and that's why my sister uh, got into drugs, and she was trying to be more American, meaning quote unquote, trying to please people. Yeah. Getting the wasted. 70s. Yeah. That it, makes it, sense. it was yeah. really just. I ended up becoming as a 14 year old kid. My parents wouldn't sleep until. At three in the morning, I would have to go counsel them. I became an adult. Why wouldn't they sleep till three? Well, they would say, "Oh my God, oh, what's going to happen to our daughter? She was out. Yeah. She's out. She, she's getting. You know, this was unheard of for traditional Indian parents. Yeah, I see. should we go okay. back to India? Oh, Why did wow. we do coming here? This country's filled with drugs. Yeah, this is the seventies, right? This is what seventies. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, so it was at home. Um, I worked extra hard to make sure my parents felt that their coming to America was not in vain. Okay. Because my sister was such a fuck up. Uh, you know. So that's where some of that competitive drive came from then. Well, right? it, 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 was, it was competitive to make, make my far- parents feel better. Yeah. To honor them because they suffered so much. And I saw my sister as completely spitting on them by her behavior. At such a young age, you thinking that that's so significant. That's yeah. Huge. So I just thought it was wrong, yeah. but I would have to console them, right? Like, what should we do with Uma? And that you would be like, like Dad, Mom, it's okay. Like a lot of people are doing. Well, no, right? we 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 talk. You know, okay. You know, we should. Anyway, it was it was a whole that was a whole dynamic. It's yeah. a whole another podcast. Yeah, okay, yeah. about the dynamics of integrating into American culture. Yeah. Uh, me being the, the son, what I had experienced, and this sort of carrying the weight of this my parents and what they'd suffered right like the whole thing was if i didn't do well i felt like i was dishonoring them and all those that whole generation your of people great struggled grandpa, your grandpa, yeah, yeah all yeah. and all those people in the village and basically it's honoring their suffering yeah. marcelo i don't know if that makes any sense no it does a lot of people don't conceptualize that yeah so i them. i yeah that's who i saw I, I would just see my great-grandfather in those fields I mean, he would pound rice so hard that he would start splitting up blood, okay? I mean, these people, when you talk about sweat and blood, and that's how he got money to send my dad to school. Yeah, that's how you got in that position. Exactly. So I could see a direct connection between their suffering and the fact that I was getting food, you know? And I could never forget that. Yeah. So, um, and I could never forget my teachers, Mr. Summer, Mr. Roth, who trained me. My coaches, you see, like these people were working class people. The, the um, Tony, who taught me how to, um, 
or this Yugoslavian people who taught me how to paint. These people are immigrants who had freaking nothing. Yeah. Just sheer hard work. So I had huge value for labor and hard work. That's why I hate people who are lazy, man. I just have a, or people who don't keep things clean. Not because of OCD, but you don't respect what the hell you have. I mean, even in India, you go to a hut, people would keep their place clean. Yeah, they don't appreciate Organized. it. Yeah, because that's all they had. They yeah. valued what they had. It's that value of honoring life in many ways, that every moment matters. I see, yeah. So, it's uh, very profound. Yeah. So, so here I, I finish at the top of the class. Um, and, uh, and now I have to come back to 10th grade. Okay. What is there left for you to do? <laughs> What's there left for you to me yeah. do? I go to a Christmas party, I think in the summer of 77 or something, 78 or, or yeah, 77, I think it was a Christmas party. Um, or, or somehow, I, oh, I know I had met my mom in 77 at a Christmas party and introduced me to Dr. Michelson. And he goes, oh, you know, because he knew I was good at math, you know, we'll figure out some project to do for you. He was a cool guy, 35-year-old guy, uh, Brookhaven experimental particle physicist, sharp guy, uh, and he was willing to take a risk. He, he Like, people who are intelligent recognize other people are smart yeah. or hardworking. And who, so that next year in 78 you know there was this high school independent studies teacher some thought she was like wild stella oleksiak and she said shiva is smart he can't you know like what course do we offer math we should set up an independent study so dr michelson offered me the opportunity to be a research fellow at rutgers what is now known as rutgers medical school then was known at the university of medicine dentistry and he said We'll figure out a project for you, okay? <laughs> There's something like the, the college students are doing, and you're doing at 10th grade, yeah. Yeah, so 10th grade, and m remember, then I have to get down to Newark. Livingston and Newark is around 30 miles away. Um, so Stella Oleksiak has to go petition the superintendent of schools. They didn't initially want to do it. Mel Klein is still alive. He's 80-some-odd years old. He agrees. So I get the right to leave in the middle of school, because I had some humanities courses, um, and go travel. I, I took the bus um, in the, all the way down to Newark. And even if you go down to Newark, it's still a ghetto around there. Yeah, it really And you is. have to take that. After you get off the bus, you can get mugged. And, and I, was, I was cool, man, because I, I never saw these. I, I saw all these people as my friends. Yeah. Walk through the parking lot. You know, people get their cars scratched and all that. And um, into the medical school. C630, medical school building, MSB. Still there. Um, and in room C630 um, was where Dr. Michelson gave me a challenge. And the challenge was um, we knew there was this thing called the inner office mail system. In fact, Dr. Michelson, would you like to create an electronic mail system? Yeah, it's him, the doctor. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, and I said, yeah, and I didn't know what the hell he said. And the next, I, I went home and I thought, I thought this is how weird those two words, electronic and mail, were juxtaposed. I, I didn't know what he, because I knew he was a physicist. I thought it was going to be, we we're going to take a piece of paper and vaporize it into plasma particles, <laughs> transport it over wire, and recreate it like the Star Trek transporter. Yeah. Electronic mail that no one had heard, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's how it was. And then um, he said, you know, we have this thing called the inner office mail system. And in room, say, 630, he had a secretary. And on her desk was this thing called an inbox, a physical metal box another box called an outbox, another thing called a draft. She had three boxes. Behind her were these file folders. 
Under her was a trash can and on her desk was this uh, typewriter and she had white out. Okay, she had paper clips. Um, and you would see him, for example, dictate an email to her. He'd say, I forget her name, Janet, whatever, you know, take this note, she'd type it. She'd leave it in the drafts. He'd come with a felt tip red pen, he'd mark it up. She'd retype it, he'd leave it in the drafts and he goes, that's final, right? And, and these letters had a very particular structure. They always had the logo of UMDNJ on top, the word plus, 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 then the word memorandum, plus, plus, plus. So it looked like the header. And then you'd have two colon, the name of the person. Sometimes you did multiple names. You'd put from, you know, your name. The CC was literally, so if I was gonna hire you, Marcelo, I would write a letter to Dr. Michelson. Dear Dr. Michelson, I would like to hire Marcelo B2 from Shiva. And they, maybe I wanted to CC two other coworkers, right? So I put CC Bill and Bob, right yeah. and sometimes maybe i wanted to bcc his boss to let him know i was doing this but those ccs bcc or cc literally meant a carbon copy so when the secretary was doing that she would have to write the memo put a piece of carbon paper put another bond paper and type so for each cc you had to do a typing okay right and you'd have to repeat it and yeah. repeat it and then sometimes you would have let's say in your case i was hiring you I would say, and then I would attach your resume and you'd put the paper clip and you put it in these envelopes, these big, you know, I think 10 inch by 14 inch envelopes and you tie it with this thing and then you'd send it to all those people. And sometimes you could also send by reg registered mail. So if I was sending to certain people, I want to make sure they got it, I'd get a little pink receipt back. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is a form of communication back then pretty much. It's the inter-office mail system. Yeah, the inter -office mail it was system. the way people collaborated. Because if I was going to hire you, it would go to all those people and they would make notes. It would come back to me and I'd look at it. Yep. Okay. Okay. And all this was done through paper. If I was doing a grant application, you may have 20 people. People would put little notes and it would come back. Okay. Yeah. This is it, like the secretary's job, right? So the, secretary's, the secretary was a point in every office of the center of the inter-office mail system. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But it's many features. You have to file, your folders. Um, you have a particular way that memo looked to, from, subject, CC, body, the paperclip, attachment, etc., registered mail. Sometimes you did a broadcast mail, what you would call email marketing, a newsletter. You'd put to a whole bunch of people. You also had to be able to handle groups. You had, they had this big thick thing called the address book. You had it not only by people's names and addresses, but you also had groups, pharmacology, all the people in pharmacology, surgery. So you should also be able to do, sometimes you have to do a letter to surgery. Yeah. And then the memo would go to, so you'd have to copy that on a mimeograph machine, okay? So is marketing, you see, and all those pieces. It's a very complex system. Yeah, that's not simple at all. Um, now, I, Dr. Michelson challenged me to replicate this entire system. It's a system, this is a key here. And in those days, uh, mini computers were just coming and you have to understand, we had three sites of rec uh, uh, the, the university. One was in Newark. Another facility was at that time in Piscataway. Another one was in New Brunswick, different parts of New Jersey. Yep. Dr. Michelson had set up the network. This wasn't the ARPANET or internet. This was, you know, you don't need those guys. You, people used to set up their own networks. Yeah. 
He had a mini computer, which was a mini mainframe computer in Newark, in that lab, C630. He had one in New Brunswick, and he had one in uh, Piscataway, yep. okay? Those three locations. Um, those three locations had all of these three computers, but each mainframe had terminals hanging off of it. So in Newark, we had the mini computer slash mainframe there. And I think there were like four terminals there in Piscataway, et cetera. So people were using these computers. Dr. Michelson had built this three network infrastructure for what he calls scientific data processing. He was very much into instrumentation. Remember, scientists in the labs are starting to collect data, like from EKGs, patient data, and he was building applications for them like graphing someone's data, doing statistics. So you would come to the terminal, on the terminal, on the on that local would be running a statistical application. So if okay. you were a doctor, you did time sharing. You paid him, paid him, which eventually went to the hospital, a certain fee for using that computer. And he had different apps, like you could run a statistical application. And he had people who were building these applications. Okay. He had a, he had a senior in college who's building this application for doing bar charts and graphs on these plotters, okay? And it was called Grapher, G-R-P-H-R. Because you can only, by the way, you can only have five characters in the Fortran language he was yeah. programming in. Yeah. This will come back. Yeah. So Michelson asked me to do this project. And, uh, and so... So was, he wanted you to do this all electronically, right? Electronically, so, convert that entire system to the paper-based system. And uh, so I was given a lot of freedom, but the most important thing was I learned who my customer was. My customer was those secretaries. Yeah. Those secretaries were my customer. And these were everyday people who had never seen a freaking computer. Remember, the people who used computers in those days, Marcelo, were Dr. Michelson wore literally a white lab coat. Um, he was 35. Phil Goldstein he was a 60-year-old physicist. Very, he used to wear his tie, his lab coat. He worked on computers writing science. Uh, Bob Field was another programmer. Dave Ritaco was a, I think a PhD graduate student there. Okay, or graduate student. Yeah. So these were the quality of people, really smart people. Michelson recruited, but one of the things Michelson taught me was he was into the idea of building applications, user applications for people. And the ethos in that lab was this, Michelson said, I will let you work here, but we're going to treat you like an adult. You have to show up, you have to work hard, and you have to be excellent. Um, so I had a high standard, and they gave me free uh, lunch in the cafeteria. As a kid, that was awesome. Yeah. No, no pay, but I was given the research fellow title. So I proceeded to understand all these features. Yeah. So if we go to that inventor of email.com site, you'll, all of these features is what I denoted. Inbox, up, there's lots of features. Now, in those mini computers in those days, you could send little text messages. We had a thing called messaging. Like I, from the Piscataway mainframe to the, you could send messages. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about did, did, did that telegraph messages. Yeah. We're talking about I had to recreate that entire system, inbox, outbox, folders, in the electronic form. The doctors there, remember, they were on the hierarchy in the medical school. The doctors in those days were seen as the elite. Yeah. Secretaries were always these women. They had to dress a certain way. A lot of sexism. I never saw a gay secretary. Okay. Yeah. Always a woman was a secretary. And she had to dress a certain way, look a certain way. You know, there was that whole sexism. So um, the notion that a secretary, and this will come out later, 
could use a computer was first of all difficult, right? Because they were used to the typewriter. Um, the doctors, one of the doctors, I remember he was a head of surgery. He said, why would I want to do this? Why do I want to do this? I just tell my secretary and she does, why do I want to be writing email? You see what I'm saying? It yeah. was, he had full service, he had concierge. And so, um, so anyway, so the first process was I interviewed the secretaries and made the list in parallel. I knew Fortran um, and we built this on the database. So one of the things was, remember you had very low memory, only 8K of memory, eight kilobytes. I had to, so if you have a program which would take, let's say 100 kilobytes and you only have eight, what do you have to do? You have to do what's called segmentation of memory. I had to write memory loading and segmentation stuff. Wow. Okay. So I had to write a kernel program which would load, which would have all the menu. And as you wanted, for example, to read a mail, it would load the read mail program. All in, so I had to take this huge program, which I eventually wrote 50,000 lines ago, and partition it into different blocks of memory that I would load in 8K of memory to give all these features. So this is something like the... the like I had to write the memory manager, yeah. okay? This is understanding memory management. So I had to do the programming in Fortran. And by the way, Fortran was meant for scientific data processing. Not like C, not like text-based languages. I was using a scientific data processing language to do text-based processing. Yeah, but this is something like the top scientists and engineers are working with, right? And you as a 14-year old uh, boy, you're actually, you have the opportunity to work with these softwares. Amazing like, people, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, because. so, but, um, so I was never treated as a 14-year-old kid. Yeah. I was treated as an equal. Yeah. And that's what's fascinating. I was treated more as an equal by Dr. Michelson, those people, than I had been uh, by that woman who's screaming at my father. Yeah. Or in India. And in that environment is where innovation took place, right? So I had this amazing parents who were supportive. Um, my, the fact my parents let me go to Newark, you know? Uh, this school teacher, Stella Oleksiak, who had done this thing to rearrange, you know, fought for me. Yeah. And Dr. Michelson, right? That was a quote unquote ecosystem where email came out of. And this is hard for people to fathom. It, and they didn't have a lot of money, but it was in that ecosystem a hardworking kid who had a mentor, a loving parent, and a good, dedicated teacher. That's where innovation comes from. Yeah. And in that environment, I wrote 50,000 lines of code. I Man, I used to work until two in the morning. We didn't have laptops in those days. We had these big things with a big like carrying case. And we had 1,200 baud modems, yeah. right? That I would carry home and program until two. Remember, I was you still- You would carry those home as well? Yeah. Program. Wow. And I would work until two in the morning on my kitchen table, writing Fortran code, okay? Um, and, and I remember, you know, we created, Remember, it had to be user-friendly. This wasn't just exchanging text messages like a bunch of nerds. I had to make it useful for these secretaries. Let me tell you how this is not an easy problem. I mean, when people talk to Steve Jobs, people really know him. I had a friend of mine who worked with him. He would belabor over making the UI easy. The user interface, because he, he wanted to... So the secretaries weren't going to use the system unless it looked and smelt like their inbox, outbox folders. Yeah. It had to have every feature, Marcelo, because they were moving from a whole different universe. It's like going from Earth to Mars. You want to make Mars look as much as Earth. Yeah. So you're going from this physical desktop now to a digital desktop. So I had to create that whole desktop. Yeah, that's something revolutionary. It's, it's revolutionary. It's when you printed it, 
I had to add print features. I created a whole, I mean, the stuff I did there is quite extraordinary, but one of the things we did was I made sure that an email was only saved once. Google and all these people are retarded in some ways. Excuse my language, but they're stupid. You're transporting an email? I never transported the email. When you wrote an email, we, the, remember I wrote this on the Hewlett Packard system. Hewlett Packard offered a database. Um, the network protocols were there. We didn't use any of this other stuff. And I wrote my code over that, okay? Nothing invented by MIT or the military or any of these people, okay? Yeah. Everything, all that stuff was written above that. But we stored it, when you wrote an email, so if you were at a different, and I wrote you an email, it was written in a database and was denoted Marcelo was gonna get it. When you came in and got your email, it was like a hyperlink. When you, you got the header, and I literally did a remote procedure call and I showed you that email. So the email was only stored once. Okay. You see what I'm saying? This yeah. is quite revolutionary, even now. Yeah. It's pretty stupid when we transport emails. So it's very secure. Uh, we had registered mail, okay? CC, we called it BM, what you call email marketing. You could blast out to a lot of people. So it had every feature, every feature and more. I think registered mail, some of these guys only put in in the you know, 90s in some of these popular emails. I had all of that. Yeah. But the point I'm making is that is email. Email is a system. And when you log into your email program, that's what you see. That's what we're using. E it's what yeah, email's not a, email creators. came out of the inter-office mail system to support yeah. collaboration in the business office environment. So between 1978, in fact, to look at 1993, you don't need the at symbol. This is like nonsense, total BS. I use the dot. Okay, um, I remember many years later, Lotus Notes, when you know they used uh, some other symbol. Okay, the point is you had the user and you had which computer he belonged to. I had that same, I called it a zip node. I didn't call it a zip code, I called it a zip node, N-O-D-E. The nodes at computers, like domains, were known as nodes. And this is in my code if you go look at it. Okay. Now the important thing, so I wrote 50,000 lines of code. I remember holding a seminar, Dr. Michelson talks about this. And uh, he, he wrote, he, he's written about this. And he goes, he goes and, and then Shiva presented this whole system. But, and he goes, the speaker at the seminar was not an eminent scholar, but a 14 year old high school student. And I used transparencies. We didn't have PowerPoint. We used to use transparencies over overhead projector. <laughs> and there were hundreds of people who saw me present the system. I wrote the user's manual. I was also the QA person. We, I got people to test. We had bug development. This was used by hundreds of people. Uh, at the age at of 14. The, at, yeah, at, at uh, 14, remember yeah. I developed the system 14, then I continued working on yeah. it. I mean, yeah. we added features, et cetera. So how long did it take you to make the... Well, the first version, I mean, if 14, you know, uh, I think about a year. And then I okay. did more and more versions. But, I mean, yeah, programming is one of the things you get better and better. In yeah. fact, I was working on it even when I came to MIT because people wanted more features. I added an administrative panel, all this stuff, man. So people were using this system right away that you created then? Yeah, first we had initial users, beta users. Yeah. And in fact, um, Dr. Rich Corson, who was a medical student there, he had written, he was a medical student, but Dr. Michelson let him work. He wrote a program called Charger, C-H-R-G-R, again, five characters, which allowed Dr. Michelson to track which apps were being used and how to charge for it, because he wanted to make money from the other doctors. He had yeah. like his own little internal business running. Yeah. So when people used email, they'd have to pay pennies, you know, for timesharing. So it was commercial. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It was, it was used by people. Um, 
And so that's what happened. Now, so you inventing it though? I, I want to go back to that moment. Like, how was? Well, the most was cool, like, the, the, uh, the coolest did you have thing. An epiphany, like, oh my well, god, I well, just the, created an email. Well, the coolest thing. Uh, well, there's a couple of points. Was the most important? I think the coolest thing was seeing me be able to send an email from one point and show up in the inbox, you know, at another point yeah. it, by a different user. And then respond back to me. The full closed loop communication. So there must have been a moment where and that actually the, succeeded. And you're like, oh my well, God. Well, the biggest right? thing was when I got the CC working. The carbon copy. It was one thing to do the boom, right? Yeah. But the carbon copy was even cooler. Because now what you were doing is you were sending not only a communication to you, but you were involving someone else that can also see it and they could participate. Yeah. You see, that's why email is a social media. It's not just military communication, point to point. And there's something important to be made here. You see, email was a, grew out of a civilian environment, yeah. trying to help people collaborate. Military communication, there's no collaboration. It's top down, general sense, order. Yeah, and the, you're talking about like just messaging people Messa yeah, messaging yeah messaging yeah but i'm saying the military yeah. doesn't care about collaboration they don't yeah. want collaboration it's not like let's hear everyone's ideas what do you think about bill we're going to hire him right or let's get people support in a grant you got to understand email is a system for collaboration yeah. well, think about think about how much business gets done in email today i send my uh uh i do contracts i do i do million dollars closes uh, my sales guy sends an email to me and to the customer there's a document, we collaborate, we go back and forth, we close a deal. That's why the CC, the BCC attachments, simple in military communications is I want to send that guy a message, period. Yeah. Okay? And that guy's going to send, it's very point to point. Yeah. And it's done for like war. War. Purposes. It's done that's, for war. It's okay? not done for the people, yeah. for innovation or, yeah. Right. And you don't, yeah. And, the point is, I'm not saying I invented electronic messaging. Electronic messaging, to be clear, is the exchange of uh, text through a electronic or an electrical device. Yeah. Morse code is electronic messaging. The radio type IBM had in the 1930s is electronic messaging. Sending message between two computers is electronic messaging. We're talking about the system. The, the system that we use today. We, yeah. That's called email. email and the exactly. important thing is I called it email. Yeah. Now, <laughs> that term was not an obvious term um, because the reason I called it email was the operating system of the Hewlett Packard operating system only allowed five characters for the names. The Fortran language allowed six for variable names. But if I use very, uh, six, the operating system didn't know it. So variable names could be six, yeah. but the programming name could be five. And I remember looking at it. I didn't even know how to pronounce it. I thought it should be Emol. <laughs> it was a weird name. Imagine if you came up with Emol and like we would just be using that nowadays, Emol. Right, right, right. So the point is, yeah. um, it, if, if I had been given uh, maybe nine characters, I may have called it Electromail. Yeah. It's not an obvious term. Um, no one had ever used that term before. No one had put those five characters together. And it had to be an uppercase because the Fortran language, everything was an uppercase. Right? If it, you know. yeah. So I called it email, wrote the code. And in 1980, uh, one of my teachers in my high school, um, my high school was also into competition. This is a very wealthy high school. They wanted um, at least their kids, 
You know, I was seeing, you know, remember, there's 4,000 kids in my high school. It's about 1,000 kids in my graduating class. And me and my sister were the only two Indian kids. <laughs> okay? Uh, I was on uh, the, uh, uh, our, our high school soccer team. I used to play uh, halfback. Won states, you know? 13-0, and 0, undefeated. So I also played soccer during this right, whole yeah. period. Yeah. Um, very competitive again, yeah. right? Um, so in that t- time frame... Um, in, in that in environment, right? The uh, one of my uh, high school teachers, uh, Mr. Walker, who's still alive, chemistry teacher, amazing chemistry teacher. Talk about excellence. Um, if you got, if you, if if the answer is ninety nine point nine five, and you wrote ninety nine point four, ten points off. Okay. Yeah. This guy was not only. Uh, teaching chemistry, AP chemistry, but he was also a contractor and a carpenter. He put two of his kids through, he told me this much later, through medical school. I mean, these were dedicated teachers. So Dr. Mr. Walker said, Shiva, you should apply for the Westinghouse Science Award. Westinghouse Science Award was known as the Baby Nobles in those days. Um, I think later became the Intel Awards and I think someone else took over it now. Um, So uh, we'd had one guy in my high school when won the one of uh, the um, uh, Westinghouse Science Awards, he ended up becoming winning the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Okay, um, so it's a pretty big award. It's a pretty big award. Yeah. It, it, there's a lot of interesting people who win those awards and what they do later in life. So um, I uh, I was encouraged to submit my invention for the Westinghouse Science Award. So that's what I did in 1980. You had to submit it, and in that award, in fact, there was a Thomas Alva Edison Award. And there was a Westinghouse Science Award. I won the Thomas Alva Edison Award. And, and I used the same essay. And in that essay, to your earlier question, I wrote, you know, one day email, I believe email will be as important as a light bulb. Um, it will present a way to eliminate paper. It was a quite a prescient thing for, yeah. I think I may have been 15 or 16 to write. You were thinking way, way ahead. I was thinking way ahead. Yeah. And... Um, so I was writing that. So clearly, you know, and again, this is not because you're some super genius. It's because when you're among people and you're working, innovation is really solving a problem. I wanted to get these secretaries from the typewriter to the keyboard. Yeah. And I could see how much freaking work they had to do to write a letter. And do, I could see, you see what I'm saying? So my observation was natural. Yeah. And, and as we'll see later, when we'll talk more, is that when the so-called controversy takes place, um, the other nerds thought this was impossible for women to move from there to there, and it's documented. Yeah. But I didn't think it was impossible because as a fourteen-year-old kid, I was among these. My, these were, you know, I used to go eat lunch with the secretaries. Yeah. My friends were the janitors, and that was your sole motivation at that time: is making their life more simple. Right? Well, it was, yeah, it was like, yeah, that and well, there's something as beyond a, that about creating something. Yeah, creating. creating something I as can't well. explain yeah. to you the thrill of you creating a tool. And other people using it. Yeah, it's the most extraordinary feeling you can imagine. Like you make something, and it makes someone life's easier, and they're using your thing to ch- affect their lives. Yeah, that's the essence of humans. Is this creation almost right? It's- yeah, I mean, think about if you created a microphone, and now every person in the world is using a microphone, or, or that you've you've the you've, ripple effect is, is yeah you you've crazy. like you've like yeah. changed. And that's why when Karl Marx said it is the tools um, that change the mode of production, it's a pr- pretty profound statement. Marx sort of understood tools, which is in, comes through innovation. So tools are almost something that can completely 
cause an inflection point in human history. You could be living like a bunch of animals and then someone discovers fire. Yeah. Now you can cook. Now you're living, you know what I'm saying? So tools can completely transform the trajectory of any system from it, one state to another. It can elevate our consciousness, it seems like. Or de-elevate, or do yeah. something. Yeah. It, it can take it in all different, I'm saying it can yeah. take it from one point to another, yeah. okay? Somewhere. So to me, that was what was extraordinary, to be seeing these people using your system, communicating, giving you feedback, you enhancing it, adding new features, uh, realizing this whole iterative process. Yeah. Right, so that's, that's what's cool. So now in 1980, so I applied for the Westinghouse Science Award, and, um, and uh, uh, I think I called it a user-friendly network-wide uh, email system. And um, they typically had finalists, and uh, I was one of the honors. They select 300, thousands of people, tens of thousands, I was 300 of the honors. I didn't win the finalists because Dr. Michelson said these, these people probably didn't believe you, you did this. You know? <laughs> these are all adults, right? These yeah. are all adults. Yeah. Right, so I won that and uh, came to MIT in 81. And the story of my coming to MIT is interesting because I was sort of done, Marcelo, and with being in front of a computer, frankly. Really? Meaning that I had done such hard work, man. Yeah. But I loved carpentry. I loved design. I used to do a lot of art. And I did not, frankly, wasn't my parents were dealing with my sister's stuff. My sister was uh, uh, in there, you know, in the Indian view, behaving extraordinarily um, bad, yeah. quote unquote bad, whatever These you want. Old, uh, yeah, my older, older sister. sister and they um, asked her, do you want to go back to India and get married? So they had actually taken her to India to get back into medical school there. So, so all this chaos is going on, on the personal side. So mm -hmm. I'm basically my own adult. Yeah. My parents had gone. And, uh, and um, uh, so I had only applied for one local state college, I think maybe two. Uh, I want to say New Jersey, I think Stevens Institute of Technology in Princeton. I have to look. Um, and my mom was always helping people she had seen these two women uh two indian women i think they'd gotten uh kicked out by one of them had gotten kicked out by her husband because she wanted a divorce and there are two indian women who came here were doctors who who in order to practice in the united states you had to pass an exam so they were in like some stop and shop or something looking at a board trying to find a place they needed a place desperately yeah. and i think my mom empathized with that woman and let her stay we had a basement you know, which was like a little apartment down there in our home and yeah. said, you know, you two guys can stay here and you could did, study. Did your mom know? Uh, no, I just met him oh, at the shopping mall. Shopping she shop. just felt bad for them. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so these two women were living downstairs studying for this exam so they could uh, practice medicine here. It's a very tough exam. Yeah. And one of them had a friend, his name is Gopal, who, uh, and my parents are in India at the time, uh, going back and forth, dealing with my sister stuff. Okay. So he said, you should apply to the school called MIT. And I, and I hadn't even heard of it. What was shocking was in retrospect, why didn't any of my high school teachers tell me about this? Okay? Yeah. No one was giving me guidance, okay? This is the most, like the biggest, Exa biggest sex school. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very prestigious school. Yeah. Again, a lot of um, Jewish kids um, who uh, uh, whose parents thought, again, they were, they were the chosen people. Yeah. Literally, you would hear that. You know, I'd yeah. have to deal with this all day long. Um, so, but no one told me about MIT. Wouldn't you think that someone should tell me? The kid who's eight. By the way, I scored yeah. 800 on my SATs. Won all these amazing made, awards. Made these awards. I was number one in all of the state math awards. You know, like every award in science and math, I was acing. Yeah. 
Um, was also selected for American Legion Jersey Boy State, where they select an athlete scholar, right? But no one told me about MIT. So anyway, this guy comes who was a friend of these women who, you know, staying. He said, you should go to, and he brings the brochure. And I remember to this date, it was a white big brochure with the picture of the MIT dome and it said, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I, I, did, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Inside, I was saying, this, this sounds like a mental institute because <laughs> it, it looked like an institute, it, too yeah. big, you know, like too big. And I wasn't going to apply to this stuff. It, it seemed, I hate to say the word, I don't want to say demonic, but something uh, institutional. Yeah. Right? Not anything with any personality. Yeah, it didn't right? seem like it. It, it seemed like, like something. It, right? like yeah. So I wasn't going to apply. It's something yeah. didn't strike me right in my gut. So two weeks later, he comes by and he says, you need to apply to this. So I take a pencil, Marcel, and I fill out the MIT application. Just to get them off your back. Yeah, and I just filled it out. And, and, and in the MIT, you had to draw a picture. They made you draw your favorite cartoon character. So I drew Beetle Bailey, who I could draw at that time. <laughs> and I submitted it, and I uh, get accepted. And then my high school physics teacher, um, who was, by the way, had a mark on her. She had been in the Holocaust, you know, whatever, or had been in a concentration camp. Yeah. And uh, she would always talk about that, you know, what had happened to her. Then she tells me, oh, yeah, you should go to MIT. My son does his PhD there. Remember, in these high schools, they get credit uh, points on if your students, right, the high school gets better points. Oh, your student, this high school students get to Harvard, MIT. Yeah. You see? Yeah. So then they were encouraging to me to go to MIT. So I remember me and my mom went to MIT, and I remember walking up 77 Mass Ave, and I, and I was like built, I was into athletics, I, you know, I was, you know what I mean? And I look at these kids and they look crazy. You know, like right. they look, I mean, a, a freshman there looked like he was 90 years old. Yeah, they were just you, overdoing it. Well, yeah, they didn't look human. They yeah, looked like yeah. they were unhealthy. Yeah. Uh, unhealthy was a word that came to me. Yeah, okay. You know, something nerdly, right? Nerdly in the extent, not really smart, just like they were hovering over computers all day. Yeah. And I came back and I said, I'm not going to this place. This is <laughs> insane, right? This is like a nonsensical place. Like it wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't moved by yeah. that I was got into MIT. Yeah, who would? Um, then that high school teacher said, Shiva, you should go. Forget MIT. You will like Boston. It's the Athens of the world. There's music. There's art. There's people from all different cultures. And I like cities. You see, I grew up in Bombay. Um, and I always liked city. I like New York. I didn't want to, I went to Princeton and I didn't, it was too suburbia. And so that was the only reason I came. Yeah. Because I thought I'd be, get to see city action. So I came to MIT and... Uh, How old were you at the time? I think I was 16 or 17. Okay, yeah. yeah, I just turned 17. And um, uh, September 2nd or 3rd was orientation at MIT for the incoming freshman class of 85. I came in 81. I came to MIT on the front page of MIT, the M not the student newspaper, but the official MIT newspaper. They highlighted three students who were coming in that class of 1,041. They said, we have some extraordinary students. One of the students did a solar panel. One of the students built an email system. And I remember looking at that at the University of Medicine. It's right there on the front page. And I was brought to be so humble, Marcelo, yeah. that I didn't tell anyone that was me. You know, yeah, yeah. I just looked at it. Um, and... Uh, but I was more interested in systems, like political systems. 
And one of my friends I hooked up with in freshman year, he was a junior called Arnold Contreras. Arnold came from the inner cities of Texas, from nothing. You know, like my parents' background. Yeah. Somehow made it. In, in those days, I might had minorities there who were real minorities. You know, Chicanos. Yeah. And uh, real blacks, not bourgeois blacks. Yeah. And these people are from inner cities. And so you connected with these people. Yeah, Arnold and I connected, and yeah. he and I joined student government. And uh, there was a thing called the Finance Board, who's the one run by students who gave money to all the student groups. And I know, and we were noticing they weren't giving any, they were only giving it to their groups. So Arnold was a fighter, and I was very moved by Arnold's fighting spirit. So uh, I ran for student body freshman class president, or they had, and I was selected student class president. So I got to go to the president's house that winter of 81 for, he had a meal, right? And he invited the student leaders. So Dr. Paul Gray, interesting enough, he had grown up in New Jersey when it was a farm and his mother, Martha, his mother still lived in New Jersey, interesting enough. Yeah. So Gray had known I invented this system and he goes, and he was on the science advisory board of, I believe, uh, Reagan at the time. He was a chief science advisor, one of the science advisors of the president of the United States. And he said, you know, it's unfortunate you cannot patent software. I didn't know any of this stuff. He said, you know, it's too bad the Supreme Court doesn't recognize software patents because they didn't know what software was. Yeah. They thought it was like paper, you know, like you were writing stuff, right? Because you were writing this stuff on a computer, uh, like music or, or um, a novel. Yeah. But he said you should copyright it. And I didn't know that in 1980... That uh, at the time I invented email, there was no way to protect software. Um, the only way you could protect software, well, you couldn't protect it in '78. Um, however, in 1980, uh, Congress had passed uh, an act called the Computer Software Act of 1980, which took the which took the Copyright Act of 1976, which allowed you to. As a writer, as a script writer, as a musician, if you wrote a piece of artistic work, you could put the C and you could submit to the copyright office and your work could be protected. Yeah. Okay? They had amended that act to say you could use that act to submit your code and it'd have to, you know, they'd have to prove it and you could then copyright your software inventions because that was the only way you could copy protect software inventions. Yeah. So I... I didn't have lawyers. We didn't have the internet. You had to write away to the copyright and they sent you the forms. There's no PDF you downloaded and printed. <laughs> and it was 10 bucks. It was a lot of money for me. Yeah. I, I think I, I got two form, I, I got one form, filled it out uh, with my stuff, right? And you had to submit all the code, Marcel. It wasn't like some of these idiots on the internet have said, oh, you, the copyright doesn't mean anything. You put a C with a circle. No. It was like this law was being developed. Yeah. Right? So you had to submit all your code and I had to go back and forth. And on August 30th, 1982, at the time I was 18, I was issued the first US copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email, yeah. period. So I call, I wrote the code with all those features, called it email, and I have the copyright. Yeah, and at the time, um, people were regularly using email now, right? The, the system. Well, yeah, so UMDNJ, they're using now in 81, yeah. um, uh, it, Remember, um, around when I submitted that code, it goes into the copyright office. Here's the thing. Um, here's a very, very important fact. We were open. We were transparent. When I was developing this in Dr. Michelson's lab, 
there were we didn't sign NDAs. There was no secrecy. Yeah. Oh, you can't see my code. I'm not going to show. That's what Apple and IBM and Microsoft do. Yeah. Like if we were, if I had grown up not in, if I, if that wasn't done in Newark and I was in Silicon Valley, I would have had lawyers. I, Bill Gates's father would have told me, "Don't show this to anyone." Yeah. We had okay. Hewlett Packard going in and out. Yeah, it was a completely different world. We had IBM going in and out. So they were amazed. I mean, they probably said, "Wow, this is pretty cool." Yeah. You know, so when I put this into 82, into the copyright office, everyone could have access to my code, right? So I can't say, well, that guy stole my code, right? But it wasn't like the extremes in technology. You know, when Facebook writes something, you have to go through passcode, this code, you have to sign 20-page non-disclosure agreements before yeah. they let you see anything. We're inventing one of the most revolutionary applications on the planet. And everyone we were sharing, I was doing seminars. <laughs> Anyone could come. It was yeah. an open public thing, right? So it's talk about open innovation. We weren't trying to make money off this. We were doing this for the sheer joy of creating. Yeah. And that's the environment Dr. Michelson created. It was an extraordinary gift that he gave to us and the other people. Yeah. Innovation should not be about profit. Well, it wasn't ever, we, were, we didn't even thinking about it. We were so excited that, wow, we could even do this. Yeah. Right, so that's is an important thing to remember. So it, the code went in, and then um, I, you know, Michelson had me as a consultant. I'd log in from my, and sometimes I'd add new features. Up until probably eighty four, eighty five, I was doing that. Okay, and that's all documented. Yeah. So um, that's the invention of email. Yeah. Now I went off in and out of MIT. Um, remember, while I was doing this journey, when I came to MIT. I had enough credits to graduate MIT in two years. AP credits, everything. Because um, you already had credits. Uh, from I had school, so many right? AP credits, yeah. right? I had AP history credits, AP, you know, which are all transferable. Yeah. Probably two and a half years to be two, two and a half years. Um, I was probably one of the top students that MIT had ever had. Um, and I say that with all humility because after a while you have to realize you have to tell the truth. It's not, it's being untruthful if you're too humble. Yeah. Right? Like I should have, I should have gotten a PR agent then. You know, my parents should have found me lawyers. You know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so here my journey was. I had sort of a huge some something with MIT never gelled with me. Okay. And I'll give you what example that was. I would see a freshman come in who would speak normal. It's going to sound really weird. A kid was a normal kid, and I remember going to my first computer science class. There were these two nerds, Sussman and Abelson, teaching the class. I thought these guys looked disgusting. Yeah. You know, they looked disgusting, but they were talking like this and, you know, waving their... I, I hate to say it, but as though by doing all those weird motions and having twitches, you were an intellectual. Yeah. And I was sitting in this class and I said, this is nonsense. I said, I've built all this. You're not even teaching anything interesting here. Like it was like a mechanic who'd built cars and who knew everything going and learning like nonsense. Yeah. And, I, and so what I saw was these people had all these behavioral things as though they had to speak a certain way, behave a certain way, you know, dress sloppy, and, and then they were an intellectual. I saw kids who looked normal literally start having twitches, you know, waving their hands weird ways. Wow, so they just want to fit in so they start doing And I'm things. telling you, and then go watch those guys. Yeah. Go watch how these nerds behave. <laughs> they act a certain way. That's crazy. So and I literally saw behavioral changes. In. Yeah, like that was your, and you had to argue incessantly about nonsensical things. Yeah. 
get nerdly about minutia that was irrelevant. Yeah, <laughs> you see it all the time. Right, this is this cult. Yeah, it is. A and I was so disgusted by it. And here, this is in 1981. So, and by the way, I was, uh, uh, I was very outgoing, also extrovert. You know, I wasn't your typical, you know, and, and I, I was in a fraternity, very interesting fraternity. There was a guy in my fraternity who came from the South, Hansel Stedman, very interesting guy. Hansel was, um, came from the deep south, talk like this, but am amazing athlete, Olympic level, I think, skier, uh, got his MD, ended up getting his MD, PhD at Harvard, but anyone else looking at him would think he was just some dumb hick. My point is yeah. that the MIT environment, was an, there was segregation there, that you behave like this. And you're a nerd and you're like, you know what I mean? Yeah, people still have this mentality. Yeah, right? they have this mentality. Yeah. That you can't be a good-looking guy who's strong, who yeah. lifts weights, and and you can also invent email. And you can, you know what I'm saying? Even with girls, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's like, What's that? Have, even with girls, you have to look a certain way in order to be like a nerd, right? It's like, right, right. So what I'm saying is they, so you could see this nonsensical. So um, uh, I uh, joined the Indian club and they I became the president of the Indian Students Club called Sangam. Now, in in MIT, you had Indians like me who were here, Indians, Indian Americans, very few of us still, but most of the Indians were the Indians who'd gone from India, they were graduate students who'd come here. Yeah. And they were like robots. Go to MIT, get my degree, <laughs> then get my PhD, then marry, get a job. Okay, so that's who the Indian students clubs were. Because I'm looking, trying to figure out who my, you know, you know, I had a fraternity, you know, yeah. Uh, I was in student body, you know, these are my extracurriculars. So I was seen as an interesting guy, right? Because he's Indian, oh, he's an Indian American. So I became president. I said, look, we should make this club really political. Let's start discussing stuff in India. Let's talk about corruption. <laughs> so I get thrown out of the Indian Students Club. <laughs> they didn't want to, like I, be, because they were here not to rock the boat. Yeah. They wanted to, they just wanted to uh, fit in, you yeah. see? So who became my friends? And these guys would always ask me my last name, Ayadure or trying to figure out my cast and they were all Brahmins okay so my friends became people like Arnold Contreras poor Hispanics inner city blacks and poor whites and in 82 or 83 uh, you have to remember this is when Reagan came in um, student uh, there were some good programs that were set up and we should talk about affirmative action was set up in a in, it was one of the gains of the civil rights movements because the yardstick was set so back for particularly blacks and minorities in this country. Yeah. So part of the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s was uh, poor people should have access to higher education. So in 1968, uh, MIT had only two black. Really? Or 65, 68, two black blacks. Students. One was a woman called Shirley Jackson. She was giving her PhD and she threw it down. She lectured all these professors how disgusting it was. Yeah. So they let in, I think, 10 black students. I forget the exact numbers, right? One of them was your friend, right? Well, no, this was a different guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But those 10 students in, I think, 1970 took over the MIT faculty club. And, yeah, okay. they, had a, and they demanded that MIT issue these um, changes. Yeah. These students realized, even though affirmative action was there, they were going to get fucked. Meaning, this was what was going to happen to them. They knew M the, the people in power just did affirmative action as throwing a bone to say, oh, we're giving the darkie something. But they knew they were going to fail because when they got to the university, 
there was not going to be any programs for them to succeed. You see, to come to MIT and succeed or Harvard, you better know calculus and physics, right? Yeah. Many of the students coming there came from, I was fortunate to go to Livingston. AP, but many of them are coming from inner city schools. Yeah. So they knew one or two years they're going to drop out. Give okay, it, right? So these students said, look, we're going to fail here. And, and the dropout rate was like 50, 60, 70% for minorities. They were coming in and they'd leave. they yeah. drop out after freshman year. There's no way they were competing. So these students demanded various programs. Like we wanted an office of minority education set up. We wanted tutorial programs here because our high schools didn't give us this. Yeah. See, the civil rights movement and the Democrats and Republicans never addressed the fundamental issue of putting infrastructure in those inner cities. They just put a band-aid called affirmative action and basically put it on taxpayers and said, ah, well, let them handle it. Yeah. So these students were smart. They'd figured it out. And so MIT had set up all these programs. So by 1981, 82, minorities were coming and there were these programs set up like MITES, uh, which was for tutoring. So the, the minority students in the summer would come and they would basically get all this intense education so they could succeed because there's stuff they didn't yeah. learn. So that was like purposely manufactured so they would fail, right? So they wouldn't before, yeah, but, before but those yeah. students in 70, 72, they, they were hard fight bottles, not only yeah. at MIT, across university campuses. So, and these are inner city kids. So 1982, there was a woman called Dean Hope, black woman, who was the head of the Office of Minority Education, and she was fired. This was after Reagan came. And remember, Reagan was slashing and burning minority programs, cutting tuition. So a lot of my friends couldn't afford tuition. Yeah. And they had to leave back to get jobs. Or, or a friend of mine, Johnny Solis, was working. He came into his electrical engineering degree from El Paso, Texas. I mean, I went to his home. His parents would eat intestines. They were really, they reminded me of my parent, my grandparents back in India. They were totally poor people. Yeah. Right? So Solis had to work like 40 hours in the freaking cafeteria and go do an M. There's no way he was yeah. going to succeed. And he ended up, in fact, failing and dropping out. Arnold, very smart kid. He took him eight years to graduate, you see? So they had, so um, Dean Hope gets fired because MIT's, you know, now Reagan is in, so the idea is to say, let's get rid of these programs. They're expensive. So when Dean Hope gets fired, me and Arnold, we were in student government and we realized the student government stuff is nonsense. Okay? Yeah. It's just bullshit, it right? Really They're not is. doing it anything. Still is. Yeah. It still is. Yeah. It's just a bunch of careerist politicians trying to get brown nosing. And in fact, exactly. uh, when I was freshman, uh, freshman president, uh, in the second term I got put freshman, MIT has this ring. All these kids get the brass ring. I thought it was the most, it's like seen as a prestige. Yeah. I never got one because I, I never liked this class of stuff. They still do that, yeah. They still do that. And there's a ring committee, which the freshman um, governance, and to, once you're on the ring committee, you get to select the ring company. That's well, so stupid. But get check this out. Whoever's on the ring committee, the ring company they select, all the people on the ring committee get free rings. Oh, so yeah, I'm looking at this and this is total them. corruption because <laughs> you're not going to select the ring that's the cheapest ring or the most economical ring, the best value yeah, bang for the buck. You're going to select the most expensive one. Yeah. Right? So I said this is corruption and I was trying to pass a bill against them. But there, it was like insider trading. That's when I realized this whole thing's a scam. Yeah. And this is what they were training me to do, be part of a scam. So Dean Hope gets fired. So me and Arnold, literally overnight, we start a newspaper called The Student, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. I find the fist, we call it The Student, and we write a scathing article against the MIT administration 
for the firing of Dean Hope. And we literally printed, we like steal MIT Xerox machines, you know, like we just go in there and we print like yeah. thousands and we just, it becomes a popular hit. Um, 83, 84, 84, 83, 84 is when the primaries are taking place. A guy called Jesse Jackson is running against Walter Mondale yep. and Reagan. And we were excited with Jesse, you know, oh wow, he's a new movement, rainbow movement, like an independent movement. On the floor of the Democratic Convention, the primaries, he gives all of his votes to Mondale, gives some sorry-ass speech, uh, basically brings, becomes an Uncle Tom. Yeah, and you're, you know, so you're supporting Jesse at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, I was, well, I was supporting his defiance yeah. against the two, something never seemed right with these two parties. Yeah. And then, but when he did that, I broke from both parties, and the student became a radical newspaper. Like, we started meeting activists in Boston, and then I realized why well, it was good to come to Boston. I met, like, Marxist-Leninists and uh, anarchists, and yeah. they started giving me stuff to read on Marx, on Lenin, um, uh, Nietzsche, all this stuff. And my education just blossomed on revolutionary politics. Yeah. And at the same time, I, there was a guy at Harvard, Jaspal Singh. Jaspal supported our Senate campaign. He's like, and Jaspal used to come watch me play soccer. And he wanted to recruit me for some other radical movement he was in. But Jaspal gave me amazing books to read. And I started working with Chomsky and trying to understand why the caste system existed. So, so I became Chomsky a, back then? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I did a research project with Noam Chomsky. With Noam Chomsky, really. Yeah. So MIT had this thing then? called the Europe Program, University Research Opportunities Program. You, you, you got to talk to a professor and see if he, you could do an independent study research. So I convinced Chomsky that, I, that he should help me figure out why the caste system existed. So over a year, I studied with him. He gave me books to read. For a year, you were... Yeah, yeah. So that's how I know Chomsky still. I mean, he and I still communicate through email, right? So Noam and I I figured out that the caste system... We'll do a whole episode on this. I figured out where the caste system came from. Uh, We had started this newspaper, and we started attacking the Democrats and Republicans. And we realized that they were really the enemy, right? Because, in fact, we realized when Reagan's tax cuts were going on, Tip O'Neill was supporting all of it, right? Uh, the Democrats were supporting everything he wanted. Yeah. And I remember one time we said, why doesn't Tip put his own tip on the tax block, you know? So we would write these hilarious articles and me and Arnold would distribute. They became the most popular. Yeah. It almost sounds like blogs nowadays. It was like the blog. It was (laughs) like the blog. And the student newspaper geeks just, I mean, you could see the same thing. Careerist student politicians, careerist student newspaper guys. Yeah. In fact, the people would go from there to become like editors at the New York Times, like Barry Sermon, who was the editor of the tech, became an editor at the New York Times. It was like a stepping stone. Okay. It was all this careerist shit. What did the school newspaper think about your paper? They hated us. Yeah, they, they, they would attack <laughs> us, right? Yeah. And we, but we became, that one sheet became more, so much more powerful. So you had the establishment newspaper, the tech, ours a revolutionary. And you know what the administration does? This is why I talk about the establishment, the, the revolutionaries, and how the establishment will create a wing of theirs that acts like it isn't there but it is theirs like yep. a Bernie Sanders yeah. they created they funded these other liberals Democrat liberals liberals just put it broad to create a newspaper called the Thistle so the administration gave the tech funding not us and them because we were becoming so popular Marcelo yeah, they our politics we it. were radicalizing people Yeah. so for example when the apartheid protest took place so by the way we ran protests all over Massachusetts Henry Kissinger came to Boston we had him kicked out. We issued 10,000 pieces of the, of the leaflet. Because of the Vietnam War, probably, right? Well, right he was speaking there. at the Fletcher School. Yeah. Along, we called him a warmonger. Yeah. We issued 10,000. And Kissinger issued a statement in the Boston Globe. He said, because of the abuse I received in a newspaper called The Student, I won't be attending. When Casper Weinberger came, 
we had a huge protest. He was chased away with tomatoes and everything out of out of John F. Yeah. Kennedy School government. Well, because I could imagine all these people going to MIT that are like very famous well, well, scientists, well, engineers, Well, our, our newspaper, we went everywhere. We go into the inner city. The establishment, yeah. right? So we so we distributed our newspaper in the Lawrence riots took place. I wrote an article, um, uh, you know, supporting the workers there. Um, I organized the MIT food service workers. So I'll give you an example. When we took an issue, we took it away from left and right. Yep. So in the apartheid issue, you know, South Africa, this is in the 80s. We're talking about, you know, people are being shot, literally, mowed down, students, you know, Soweto Rebellion and so on. Um, when the apartheid protests were taking place in South Africa, the liberals, so you had the typical right wing at MIT who said, oh, well, you know, uh, we're helping those darkies there. We should send them the divestment movement, right? And the liberals were in this middle of the road. Well, you know, we shall overcome. We should stop. You know, this is not right. And there was like partial divestment. Yeah. Um, so what did the position we took, the student, we, because we became a, a, a movement on campus, we said, you know what? Apartheid takes place right here. We don't need to... We, we said the problem with liberalism is you guys... You know, um, we'll talk about the stuff in South Africa. Oh, those poor, do but you won't even go to Dorchester or Roxbury here, yeah. or you won't even talk about the fact of the food service workers being paid less. So we built shanty towns right on the, the we built these shanties. And uh, we then said, we need to end apartheid from Boston to Soweto. So we brought in the food service workers to support the apartheid movement. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's we linked. It was a much more sophisticated movement. And so one time we did a protest from BU up Calm Ave across the Mass Ave Bridge down to um, the steps of MIT. Well, we're marching and, you know, the liberals have their thing, no to apartheid, stop apartheid. There's very lame um, things. And you have to understand... In South Africa at the time, there's like major explosive, I mean, things are escalating, right? Major shootings, like students are being, so, so we had a button which said death to apartheid. And we took up the slogan, apartheid in South Africa, burn it to the ground. And everyone starts chanting because they were angry, yeah. you see? And these liberals surround me with my megaphone, right? <laughs> you can't say that, that's too violent. Oh and we're like, God. shut the fuck up. <laughs> You know, what are you talking about? You so, so you could see liberalism wanting to run movements but contain it. Yep. They don't want it to be explosive. They don't want people to express their natural instincts, their hatred, their anger, right? They want to always contain, contain, contain. So they'll do protests to the extent they can contain it and shepherd it and be the wing of the Democratic Party. Yep. Right? So I saw that as an 18, 19 year old kid. How the Demo and many of these organizations were involved in those protests. They would be DSA people, Acorn people, you say? Yeah. Things that Obama belonged to, right? Yeah. Fake lefties. Yep. They always wanted to, as though the masses were stupid. Oh, you can't say that. You can't talk like that. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Always containing people. There was some form of political correctness still. Exactly. There, yeah, so I remember yeah. we marched across, and when we got to MIT, you know, I gave a talk, and I pulled out the South African flag, which I went and bought in Arlington, and we, and I'm dousing with ke kerosene, we're burning it. 
Yeah. And there's a picture picture you'll find burning the South African flag. Yeah, and the black that. police officers didn't do anything. They let me do whatever the hell I wanted <laughs> because there was so much anger. Yeah. And we built a movement on campus. And then we marched to Paul Gray's office, the same guy who, I, who told me that I should copyright email. At that time, he became my enemy. Really? Why did he become because your enemy? Because Gray was supporting. Oh, he wasn't supporting yeah, yeah. what you were well, doing? Yeah, because we were... Because, um, I think Dr. Gray had a lot of respect for me, but he was saying, oh, and we, I had all the facts and I started calling him a liar and he started shaking. Anyway, <laughs> we raised hell on that campus. Yeah. And um, when I finished my undergraduate, in fact, five, ten years ago, the provost at MIT wrote in the faculty newsletter, where have people like Shivaya Dure gone? He goes, we used to have porcupines on this campus. Like basically talking about how all these students are lulled into sort of sleep. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking civil disobedience for civil disobedience sake. We're talking about real revolutionary politics. Yep. So Marcel, what I'm trying to say is, you're talking to some guy who was really moved by his grandparents, you know, to work hard. But also, I saw in my friends who were from inner city East LA, my, my people, yeah. who were also in India. You see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, you I had s- a very profound uh, be- like belief, I guess, back then. Um, still, still to this day, that's yeah. what moves me. So people would say, when I was young in India growing up, five years old, my dad's friend came, and in India there was a revolutionary movement growing in the, in, among the farmers, 87% of India's farmers. This was a five-year-old kid, and, and this kid, this f- friend of mine, he goes, oh my God, these peasants are shooting their landowners, their landlords. And I was just listening, I said, what, what do you mean? Why are they doing that? Well, these peasants have no food, they have no clothing, and they think it's okay to go kill the landlords. I go, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> like, to me, yeah. like, what the hell is going on? You have all of this, and they have nothing, and yeah. they shouldn't fight back? And I remember the the guy looking at me really angry. Tell, he goes, your son's a communist. <laughs> and my dad's saying, uh, don't worry, my, my son will change. But I haven't changed, Marcelo. My anger, my hatred against injustice never waned. Yeah. It's so, because I think about my grandparents, I think about my grandfather, I think about truth, you know? I think about the life of Jesus Christ, you know? Because my my grandmother, you know, loved the life of Christ or the honorable fighters. I mean, they're deep within me, you know? They're they're like so deeply epigenetically programmed, probably from sleeping in my grandmother's lap and hearing those amazing stories. So that was my, my, so I ended up graduating MIT like five years instead of two years. Because I was involved in the student, we were raising hell. It didn't matter to me because, and I figured out the military industrial complex. I figured out what MIT was. I figured they just wanted to make me a machine and these people are tools. When I say these students would change, you could see them being manufactured to be stupid nerds. It's an interesting stupid nerds. That's what they were. So They don't want you to speak out. They just want you to... Well, they want... Yeah, they want... They have... Look, segregation is not just black and white. Segregation is, okay, to look like a scientist... You must have a beard, a pocket protector, and a nerd, and you must dress all shabby, yep. and you must talk like this. Then you're a nerd. Or else okay? we're not going to accept you. Right. Yeah. To be an athlete, you must look like this. To be a movie star or celebrity, you must behave like this. You see what I'm saying? They have created all these forms, and then you they put you into those buckets. Yep. They don't want people breaking those boundaries. So I was an athlete. I was talking about this, and I could throw a freaking fastball at 80 miles an hour, you know? I haven't thrown one late, you know? But, I mean, that doesn't compute. Even to this day, people think that's not possible. You exactly, Th- that's that not dynamic. possible. Yeah. I mean, uh, you can't be coordinated, you yeah. know? Um, you can't bench press, 
you know, weights and still be, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like all these things don't compute for them. Yeah. Like the thought of being a human being is very one dimensional. Yeah. I think people learn this in school as well. That's how they're in public schooling. They're public schooling. Um, and, and to be an intellectual, you must behave like this. Yeah. Right. Then you get your PhD. Um, in my case, I went to MIT, did my uh, bachelor's. Uh, always, by the way, I was always had a job, full time jobs. I was making money on my own because I could program. Oh, yeah. I okay. had about 100K in the bank by the time I was 21 years old. I bought my first home. Wow, you had super valuable skill. That I was always programming. I could charge for, good yeah. money, man. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't want to pay rent, so I think by 86, uh, I'd bought a home. One of my parents, I get in Belmont. Okay? Uh, Wait, so, how, how old again? Say that again? When I was about 19, I bought my first 19, home. 19, you bought yeah. your first home. Wait a minute, 17, 16, 17, 18, 19. I'm sorry, what is senior? Tw senior, 21. 21, 21. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But uh, my point is that I was doing many things. I was doing research. I won the research awards at MIT. I was working with Chomsky. I was raising hell. I was doing all these things. So to me, it was doing all of these things were yeah. the same thing in many ways. You know, and I needed about five hours sleep. I'd meditate. Um, so I knew how to have high energy and I would go into deep sleep, you know? One time when I was in college, my fraternity, I bet people that I could stay away uh, 15 days with only 30 minutes sleep. Because I came to the conclusion that if you could go into a deep state of sleep, and believe it or not, uh, for nine days I did it, and then this fear came, I had a final exam, but I could have done it. It's fear. <laughs> I think that's what the military does, right? It's all like, yeah, but yeah. what I'm saying is I grew up with that training from my grandparents, what you call Siddhi training. Like yeah. what yogis or ninjas learn. I learned that kind of stuff as a young kid, okay? That seems like a super valuable skill. It is. Yeah. So um, so I had these skills and I was very motivated. I had a deep hatred for injustice, Yeah. you know? So I went, I was working at a, after I finished MIT, I briefly, I, I was while I was going to MIT, I was working at a company uh, called GCI, which we created before PowerPoint. There was a company called Lotus123, which created the first spreadsheet. We created the PowerPoint version to that. I was one of the uh, senior engineers, and we that got sold to Lotus. And then I came to work in Lotus, which used to be on First Street in Cambridge, where all the. And then while I'm working there, I uh, they gave me they paid for me to go back to MIT as long as I'd keep consulting for them. And I ended up going back to MIT to getting my masters in a new lab that had just been founded called the MIT Media Lab, which was bringing artists and technologists. I did the first a visualization of waves in solid material that no one had ever seen. And I also ended up getting my masters in mechanical engineering. In the 1800s, a guy called Lord, Lord Rayleigh had predicted if you send a sound wave through material, it would create these waves in certain patterns. No one had ever seen these. So I mathematically modeled it for my master's in mechanical engineering, and then I visualized. It was called scientific visualization, which you call big data today. Okay. I created some of the first visualization systems. When I finished that, I was very much into pattern analysis. Yeah. And I started doing my work in, I was in the middle of my, doing my PhD. I worked with MIT to create a new, what was called a new interdepartment between the engineering school, the computer science school, et cetera. It was my own little, because my research was so new, I was creating, my PhD was seeing if I could create a new technology that could analyze any pattern. Your face, your fingerprint, um, any kind of pattern. Okay. Voice, one technology to analyze your voice pattern or your fingerprint handwriting. While I was doing that, 
this is the mid 90s now early 90s um, I was also working at a company building a search engine for something else for first CD-ROM engines okay so anyway so while in the middle of all this um, I get invited to participate in a contest um, to analyze email let me tell you what happened the white remember so 78 to 93 78 to 93 what's going on um, email is in the office environment if you went to a group of people I 93 and he said, how many of you have an email account? Two people would raise their hand at a group of a thousand, okay? Because email is used in the office environment. Yeah. People, okay. after my creation, people have things like Lotus Notes and Eudora, but there's always local area networks. Yeah. You connect a bunch of computers together. Many pe people of your age may not know this. Under the age of 40, you had local area networks and you connect and you had an email program. You don't need the internet. Yeah. That was the network. Okay. Okay, so up until 92, 93, there were... Email use was in the business office environment. However, in 93, something important happened. The World Wide Web came, WWW, which put a GUI interface on the internet, which was basically around since the 60s. And once that came, people started taking those email programs and rewriting them for the web-based interface, like I Hotmail. Okay. And that's when email volume explodes. So email went from being a consume business application to a consumer application. After the internet yeah. was invented, yeah. Right, so a lot of uh, people don't know this because that's when email became available to Joe, because it was email was there, um, but Hotmail and these companies essentially put a web-based interface. Um, and so what happened then was, so uh, these uh, 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 companies started growing and more and more people um, everyday citizens started using email as a consumer application. And as a consumer application, um, organizations started receiving more inbound email. So the White House, for example, when Bill Clinton was there, starts getting 5,000 emails a day and it keeps doubling. So there was a contest, the executive office of the vice, uh, of, the, of the executive office of the president in, in uh, cooperation with the National Institute of Standards, which was doing the text retrieval conference, ran to see are there technologies which could automatically read an email and sort it into different buckets. Let me explain why this is important. Prior to email, the White House was getting basically print mail. So if you wrote to the president, you said, you know, um, please tell me your position on education. Please tell me your position on uh, drug enforcement. That would come in and Believe it or not, the White House had form letters. They had 147 different buckets of uh, different form letters. So when a letter came in, they would choose the closest form letter, and they would write you back a letter with that form letter. So this is a way that um, the uh, White House handled communication. But when email came, the way that they were doing it was they would treat email like a print mail letter. So they would print out the email, find the same bucket and they would only send you back a print mail if you had listed your um, address in that email which means your um, uh, home address so an email got responded by print mail so obviously this wasn't going to work and they were getting uh, to hire more and more interns to help Clinton probably shouldn't use the word um, uh, Clinton uh, and interns together but um, the point is that uh, email volume is growing, so the White House decided, are there AI-type technologies that could read the email, bucket it into one of those 147 categories to automatically do that? So the long story short was, um, there were six companies invited to participate. 
I was invited because people heard about my PhD work, so I uh, decided to participate in this White House contest to automatically um, analyze and categorize President Clinton's email. The net of it was I won that contest. I okay. won the White House contest, yeah. um, and that when I won that contest, I had met an attorney, and he said, "Shiva, you could always do your PhD." And remember, the internet is taking off now, yeah. meaning the World Wide Web. 1993. So I left MIT, which is unheard of also to get into the PhD program, to pass your qualifiers. My parents were upset. Everyone was upset. What the hell? You're leaving your PhD? Because this is like, really? yeah. yeah, how many people get to go to MIT? How many people get a master's? How many people get a PhD from the engineering school? So I leave and I have no money. And the interesting, the interesting um, uh, one of the motivations I left was I was no money in the sense that I was doing consulting jobs, right? And I had a home and something interesting happened. I love beautiful cars. I was driving down Fresh Pond Park when I saw this Corvette, which I still have in 1994 and I bought it, $80,000. Okay, and I have a $2,000 a month payment on it. So I'm like, shoot, I need to make money. (laughs) So I leave and uh, it was a motivation for me to start Echomail. In fact, I started two companies. I started Echomail and Remember, I was also doing a lot of arts. A lot of my friends were musicians and artists. Um, I had a huge community of friends who were musicians and artists. And I also started a company called Arts Online. Arts Online was a company we were thinking, wow, all my friends who are artists get screwed. Visual artists, they have to need all these stupid agents. Suppose we could create a portal where you could put artists up. We could directly help them go to the internet. So um, we bootstrapped this. I went to the mayor of Cambridge. And I said, look, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an MIT guy. I want to start this company to help artists. So he said, go talk to this guy who heads up the Multicultural Arts Center in East Cambridge. So I go to him and they have a beautiful building. Convince him to give me space. And I said, I'll give you an internet connection. I didn't even have one. So he gives me a little 10 by 10 foot room. And in return, I said, I'll build your website for you. I go to MCI. And, uh, and by this time, I was doing seminars all over the country. Yeah. and educating artists that they should go on the internet. This is so new to people. Yeah. I wrote a book called Arts in the Internet, really? went okay. to MCI, which was a competitor at AT&T in those days, and I gave them advertising on the back of my book. And I said, give me an internet T1 line, which was unheard of. They gave me a T1 line to that building. And I went to digital and I said, look, I'll put a banner ad, which was unheard of also at the time. We created the site portal called Arts Online. Digital gave me the computer for free, which was an alpha processing machine, which was like a supercomputer. I got a free line from MCI. The building guys gave me a free building. And we started doing Arts Online. We started putting arts companies all over the country. And we had our first thing where an artist in Scotland, we built this page and he got his first order. This is 1993, 1994. We got 99 bucks for a website. So we weren't making any money, but this was almost like a social service we were doing. It's like a revolutionary thing. Yeah. The internet could, and I wrote a book called Arts and the Revolution, Arts and the Internet, The Guide to the Revolution. It's very cool things in that book. People go read it. Um, at that same time, um, Echo Mail, um, this, this, the technology I had done for uh, helping the White House, I'm trying to sell it to somebody. Uh, I luckily meet this guy uh, who is hosting websites at a local uh, provider here. And he had just won the contract to host all of AT&T's websites, $10 million contract. Wow. He said, Shiva, I think your technology could be used by AT&T. 
They have 4D website. They're going to be receiving inbound mail. Long, long story is that I end up going back and forth to AT&T on a, the Fu Wang Chinese bus. You know, <laughs> 15, because it's a long ride, right? Yeah. And I eventually get a contract from AT&T where they decide to buy the technology I'd won the contest for from White House for analyzing and using email. $40,000 contract. The two days before, for Arts Online, we'd burned through all our money. I had people working for me. I had gone to Foxwoods taking my credit card and I was up to like $20,000 on playing um, blackjack because I had a whole system of winning. <laughs> and my chief financial officer had screwed up the card count and we lost everything. Oh, really? Yeah. You were doing card counting? Yeah. Like that. So, well, but, but he did it wrong. Anyway, so we come home back, you know, like two days. Like, if you've ever been to these casinos, you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. So anyway, the interesting thing was two days later when we, uh, when I came back uh, to our office, there was this check for $40,000 from AT&T. All that stuff that we'd gone back and forth to AT&T, AT&T finally realized that they were going to need a technology because they were going to be getting lots of inbound email and they couldn't manually do it, that they needed uh, computer-assisted technology to read the email, route it, etc. The interesting thing was we had that building in the Arts Online building, we had a server, and but AT&T did not want to host our software. The IT guys weren't ready for this new kind of technology. So what did we do? You call cloud computing, we call it ASP. In those days we call it application service provider. So we literally had this rinky-dink server and a multi-billion dollar company would route all their consumer emails to us. You know, you know people had questions. Yeah. Our technology, read the email, extract out the attitude, the issue. I had some very powerful technologies we built for email management. In fact, we got three patents. Um, and that technology would analyze email, sort it, and in fact, figure out a response. So by the time a call center person logged in, from there, they would log in from all over the world to that little server. Was there any other companies uh, doing this? No one, thing? this no. was totally no. new, okay. right? Called Echo Mail. And I would get paid a buck 83 for every email we automatically analyzed. 30 cents for every email that went through. So our company took off. Okay? That's insane. AT&T was my first <laughs> customer. Then we got Nike, then Citigroup. And all of this, I, was a, I did 40 million in sales myself. We would take on companies like later on, IBM, et cetera. And this is mostly you managing everything, right? Because the and AI for, is doing every everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and so basically our stuff would do the, do the but remember, we, we started with this little, what you call cloud competing, we built, that was in the, for AT&T, we were the cloud for them. Yeah. And they would log in. Um, so that company grew. So by, now I was only gonna do this for two years to leave MIT. This ended up becoming a 10 year project, Marcelo. From 1993 to 2003, Echomel grew. Um, I sold a big piece of it. That's how I made a lot of money. That's how I bought my building, etc. cetera. Um, 2003, I'm coming back to MIT. I'm just walking in to see what's going on. I see an advisor of mine. He says, Shiva, you left your PhD. You should come back and finish it. There's this really cool field called systems biology. It'll let you do what you really wanted to do in medicine. Because remember, I went to work in that medical school, like I said, to do really medical research. Dr. Michelson had me do email. Yeah. I came to MIT to do medical research, went in and out, and got back involved in email that go mail okay, yeah. for 10 years. Um, and so Professor Dewey said, come back. There's a field called systems biology where it wants to integrate computing and biology to mathematically model the whole human body or the human cell. 
so you can find medicines faster and cheaper. So that's what I, so 2003 to seven, we'll do a whole podcast on this. I, I created a new technology called Cytosolve, um, went back uh, to India, took a break to do research in what, you know, now I had my PhD, I got all my engineering degrees. So I said, let me go now with, so no one could attack my scientific credibility. Let me go back and understand how that my grandmother with all those tattoos was healing people, you know, because remember one thing I didn't share, my grandmother was a healer. Yeah. Uh, when she was in that village, she could observe your face, predict what was going on in your body, figure out the right combinations of medicines that worked for you. This is one of my interests that grew in medicine. This is why I, in fact, wanted to work at that medical school because I was deeply moved how my grandmother with no degrees could heal people. Yeah. So you're always into Eastern medicine. Always into yeah. Eastern medicine or medicine yeah. and healing. I always wanted to be a doctor but was so disgusted by the way medicine treated the body like parts. Yeah. And um, so that was my motivation. I thought I was going to be able to do programming and computing. In fact, I did when I first joined that medical school. I looked at how babies were dying in their sleep and used computing for that. I did do a project alongside that email project. Okay. But the Cytosoft came out. I went back to India and actually made a major breakthrough. I was able to integrate Eastern and Western medicine, wrote a paper where I sort of unraveled uh, what is Eastern medicine and the fact that it's actually related to engineering systems theory came back. Um, um, and by the way, while I was in India, we should do another podcast. I got recruited by the Indian government to run one of the largest uh, innovation centers. I exposed corruption there and I had to come back to America in 2010. Yeah. Um, but I saw front face how innovation in an amazing country like India, where they have a lot of smart people, was being sustained by a feudal environment where people, because of that hierarchy, yeah. So I came back to the United States in, uh, after two years on my Fulbright in 2010 uh, and uh, was teaching a class at MIT in e integrating Eastern and Western medicine, a lecture series. And then I started developing a class called systems visualization. This allowed me to combine my engineering systems theory, my, my love of art, and to really help students visualize very complex systems, healthcare systems analyze this. It's, it's almost a new form of journalism I created. The most popular MIT class. This almost originates from you as a little kid meditating, right? And, and visualizing what you want. Exactly. This is a way to visualize very complex um, yeah. things. Yeah. And what's going on then is this is 2011. Um, my mom tells me that she's got a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. And you basically have like three months to live. It's a disease that comes like that. And it turns out the reason she got that was when we first came in Patterson, she worked at a mill which had those asbestos fibers. Oh, no, really? Right, yeah. So it, it, it takes time, you know? Yeah. And um, so, uh, in, so uh, three months before she passed away, she, in a suitcase, this is in November uh, or December, yeah, November, early, late October, she gives me a suitcase filled with all of those materials, Marcelo, of everything I had created for the invention of email. The code, the tape, the copyright, everything. In a beautiful Samson I2. Uh, she kept that. This she kept time. that beautifully yeah. organized. My mom was very meticulous. You know, you find that people who have little are very well organized because they value everything. It was yeah. beautiful. My mom was a super organizer. And I look at this and I was very moved because I just come from India where I had to leave because I exposed corruption there, where there's all this hierarchy. And I was realizing, wow, 
in Newark, New Jersey, there was no hierarchy. Dr. Michelson treated a 14-year-old kid as an equal, and that's where innovation takes place. It takes place in that sense of where you have love, understanding, etc. With very little, Newark, New Jersey is where email was invented. And so I'm looking at this. The, a friend of mine who's a professor of media at Emerson goes, Shiva, you invented email. Why didn't you tell anyone? He has his friend Doug Ameth, who's a senior technology editor at Time Magazine, who actually wants to review all this material. By the way, the only journalist who went through everything, and he writes an article in, in Time Magazine called The Man Who Invented Email on November 11th, 2011. Um, then I was going to give all this material to my alma mater, MIT Museum. The editor, the uh, curator of the MIT Museum, Deb, her name will come to me. She says, Shiva, this doesn't belong here. This belongs in the Smithsonian. We would be stealing it from you. So she fires off emails, and I get um, uh, emails from the Computer History Museum in the West Coast and the Smithsonian. So we were, and they're sort of vying uh, for my material because this is considered like historical material. Yeah. Uh, finally, I decided to put it in the Smithsonian, and on February 16th, 2012, after, um, the next day after Valentine's Day, my mom had just passed on January 7th, 2012, and I had to go to India. In India, you have to shave your head when someone passes. It's like an offering you do. So I had like a bald head. For a funeral or just... Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. When you're, whether if you're the first son and your mom and your dad pass. Oh, okay. So I had just come from that mourning ceremony because I had to... For 16 days, say, say the soul takes to pass from January 7th to the 23rd. So February 16th, I go to the Smithsonian. They have a ceremony. You know, I sign all these documents. It's sort of a nice ceremony. That evening, a Washington Post reporter, a young African-American reporter, journalist, she does this video series on me um, on the invention of email. And um, everything's great. She writes a great article. Shiva Ayadere honored as the inventor of email. I think it was in the front page of the Washington Post. Um, and that's when the proverbial shit hits the fan. The old guard during those 35 years, this young, humble Indian kid, didn't have parents who were lawyers or publicists, yeah. didn't promote himself, had rewritten the narrative that a, a guy who has a pocket protector, has a beard and glasses, who works for a company called Raytheon, formerly known as BBNN, who did 15 minutes of code writing, adding text file to the bottom of a fi remote file, had conflated that to be email, Marcelo. Yeah. And all the computer historians, a bunch of dopes, had supported him. Yeah. And and it held on to the story that email must have been created by the ARPANET. You know, these um, total PR campaign they had done and bamboozled the American public. Yeah. But more importantly was the fact that this had gone into the Smithsonian. You see, it was one thing if it would just stayed somewhere else. But when it went into the Smithsonian, it was like a a new skull was found in Africa yeah. and it had to be destroyed <laughs> because all of these historians, remember academics had built their pillar of history based on that. So once that went in, you have a guy, <clears throat> a historian called me a, uh, a fraud. He writes on their blog pages, which goes out to all the nerds, computer science nerds. Yeah. And he belongs to an organization called SIG CIS, some one society of computer scientists, computer historians. And Thousands, not hundreds, thousands of calls come into MIT. Your office or just MIT, the president, office of the president, the office of the calling president. that I should be fired. 
Yeah, just now remember, I was teaching it. I wasn't even making a penny at MIT. I was teaching this amazing course. My yeah. students love me. Just because you're teaching at MIT, they want you fired, and that you're well. How, how dare this guy say he invented email? Yeah, it has nothing to do with MIT, but just because you're a part of like this institution and you claim this, they want you fired. Right. This guy's crazy. Blah blah blah. So you have my now. Remember, I'm t I have. In, in an elective class at MIT, you're lucky if you get five or 10. I was teaching this class where I had 60, 100 people showing up. And other professors are jealous of me. And I'm not even getting paid. Yeah. I did it for the love, and it's an amazing course. We had students from all over the institute taking my course. They would do amazing projects. So the head of my department, um, uh, and, I, and I'm walking to MIT feeling like a freaking low caste untouchable again. Like I did something wrong. This is something that changed overnight. Overnight. Yeah. Overnight, man. That's insane, yeah. And it's insane. Here, prior to that, I had been on the front page of MIT three or four times. One, when I faced, first came in, in in 1981. One, when I won my Fulbright front page of MIT. I was on the front page of Technology Review, which is the most eminent magazine when I created Echo Mail. Centerfold, full page article about this guy who created Echo Mail. Look at uh, these companies helping Nike and AT&T. But when I said email was created, not before I came to MIT, I'm no longer, I'm, I'm like a pariah man, vilified. Yeah. And I had been given my two-year lecture in February, the head of the, I had two, prof, uh, two lectureships in the biological engineering department for teaching that East-West lecture series and in the media lab for teaching the systems visualization. And um, they do not renew my systems visualization course. <laughs> and the B department says, oh, even he gave me a two-year renewal. He said, oh, we made a mistake. Uh, we love your work, Dr. Ayadure, um, but we can't uh, renew it because we can't do this anymore. It doesn't give this reason. Yeah. Now, this is Doug Laufenberger, who was the head of the BE department, who three years ago was being hit by a black professor because he didn't get tenure. And all the black students at MIT were coming from to me to saying, Shiva, we need you to do activist work against Doug. Yeah. And I looked at it and the, and the guy frankly wasn't qualified. So I stood up for Doug Laufenberger on principle and Doug Laufenberger couldn't stand up for me on principle. Yeah. Okay, so here, Marcelo, I am here, basically no one is standing up for me. And you're you're expecting people to yeah because kind of here is a guy who'd like, fought for other students at MIT yeah. who'd fought for faculty at MIT who'd fought for the food service workers who was a, who was and here uh, no one was stand in fact no Indians came up for me one blog article said this curry stain Indian should be beaten and hanged Gawker Media puts out an article calling me an asshole and a dick and a fraud. They, I mean, oh, for, no, and they, oh, for nothing, and, right? For you just making this claim. There, I didn't even make a claim. I just yeah, went into the Smithsonian. You went to the Smithsonian, yeah. Right. It should have been a day to honor the American dream, celebrate yeah. it. So Gawker Media has, I mean, Gawker Gizmodo reaches all the technical people in the world. Yeah. And that's, so they put that out. Thousands of calls are coming into MIT. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? I said, I didn't. If I wanted fame and fortune, I would have gotten it other ways, right? Yeah. And I'm looking at that situation, my mom's death. I'm looking at the fact that I just came back from India where I saw corruption, you know, how innovation is stifled. And I, and I had a student in my systems visualization class, Devin Sparks, amazing kid, one of the most sensitive students, very smart kid, who 
saw what was happening to me and he too had gone through his journey where he had been pissed he got pissed off at MIT it's a very long a whole other podcast we could do on this uh, his journey but Devin starts helping me because when you're attacked like this you actually I've talked to women who are rape victims they think they did something wrong yeah. I said shit maybe I didn't invent email maybe I'm a freaking liar maybe I am a fraud you know like what am I you know yeah because you were standing up for yourself right? yeah like, but it took me a no while to really do that journey that. you see yeah it, it's a very interesting thing. I was standing up for others. I was fighting. I was burning flags. But here, it's an interesting journey where you have to value yourself, or for that matter, that 14-year-old kid, Yeah. to stand up for that kid because no one else was going to stand up for him. And in fact, friends of mine are, what do you mean, Shiva, you invented email? What are you talking about? <laughs> that was done by the military. Yeah. And asserting that truth was a whole different journey, Marcelo. Yeah. It's almost like they want to trick themselves because they know they, that's yeah because not what they've been brainwashed. Happened. Yeah. So what did we do? I said, let me put my hat on as an activist, but for that fourteen-year-old boy. Mm. And so, let's do the hard work because truth is not easy. Truth is something you have to fight for. So Devin, literally three months he spent in the MIT libraries. We went and looked at every technical paper written before 1978. Okay. You, you and Devin. Me and Devin. We went through microfiche papers like we're thinking shit did someone else invent email and lo and behold that's why i believe there's a god this guy david crocker i call him crocker shit who claims he's a you know internet messaging guy like his yep. people had he worked at bbn he, like they ray tomlinson him and invented email he forgot he wrote a paper to the rand report the rand corporation is one of the most eminent consulting military consulting organizations in 1977 six months before I started inventing email he wrote an amazing report talking about the state of electronic messaging like what were the developments what kind of software and in that report he's summarizing he's saying you know at this point no effort is being made to emulate which means to create the electronic version of the inner office mail system yeah it is impossible he uses the word he go it is almost impossible to hand all user needs. What did he mean by that? You have to decipher this. What this guy was really saying was, I'm smart, I can see the computer, but these secretaries, because what was he referring to as the inter-office mail system? Well, he, who uses that? Not nerds, it's secretaries. To create a system that would meet users of differing needs. People who could program, and people who, who didn't know how to use a computer. He th they thought it was impossible. Yeah. And, but that's what I had created. So we put that out. So me and Devin created the website called inventorofemail.com. I registered it. In fact, I registered history of email, right? And then they attacked me. Look at this guy, he's a self-promoter. He created the site inventor of email. Well, they had the right to attack me in all different media. Yeah, So no we create for you. We created inventor of email and we literally post all the facts. I said, look, here, I, I screenshot all my documents. We put it up. Here's the code. Look, here's the code for inbox. Here's the code for outbox. Here's the code for registered mail. It's all up there. Yep. And um, we put up that site. And at that time, I went back to Noam Chomsky. And I said, Noam, do you know what's going on? And he didn't know. And I said, Noam, you need to say something. And he said, wow, you know, he goes, this story sounds very similar to the guy who created the wind wiper. And he tells me the story that there was a guy called David Noble who was a professor at MIT. David Noble was a professor of history of science. He was about to get tenure. 
tenure is a huge thing. It's like you become a god, right? You don't ever have to, you get a salary for yeah, life. Yeah, especially at MIT. Yeah. So David Noel was, he was a professor of history of science. Two weeks before his tenure review was up, he wrote an essay. This guy was a great man, I think. I think he was, he was a great fighter. Far more than, frankly, Chomsky, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, David Noble wrote an essay saying that control systems theory, which MIT prides itself on, like they're the ones who created, like, you know, the automatic wind wiper, you know, it works, it senses water, and it automatically moves. Okay. It's called control systems. You have a sensor, uh, like the thermostat, yeah. you know, right? So turns out that MIT didn't create that. That whole science, it was done by a Michigan mechanic in his yeah. basement. MIT professors went there and took that whole theory. So he basically, he was saying how innovation occurs in other places. He wrote that paper, he's denied tenure by MIT. He sues MIT. And Chomsky was one of the people who was deposed. Anyway, Noam said, this sounds a lot like that. So Noam writes a statement for me, okay, which we put up on the site. Um, Noam Chomsky, um, then we do a press release. Noam, I sent the, Noam approved it. Well, that we put out, because this is like a, freaking firefights going on. I'm being called all these names. Yeah, I mean, because Noam's a pretty right. famous person. He's someone that... 12 midnight, want. I'm with my friend, my friend Lorraine Minetti, by the way, who's my next door neighbor, my high school sweetheart, or my child sweetheart. She had heard Lorraine, uh, I had just gotten out of Lorraine, who cannot fly in an airplane, comes up here, stays with me for... I would get up at 6 in the morning, or 5 in the morning, Devin would show up and we would we would write and do the research. She would just make me food, make sure I was healing, you know? It was like a firefight, man. You just had three months of you nonstop doing research? Is that how long? Three, three, yeah, that website. I mean, yeah. it's like a PhD thesis. Yeah. Three to six months, you know, we're just writing, putting out firefights. So Chomsky gives another press statement, which we put out. Chomsky gets hammered by the MIT administration. Really? Chomsky calls me up, quote unquote, he goes, Shiva, why did you put that out? I said, no, you approved it. He goes, well, I'm getting I'm getting attacked by my home institution. I go, Noam, what do you mean your home, home institution? institution. When, like the military industrial complex <laughs> is your home institution? The thing and, he talks and against. That's, and that's when I saw what Chomsky's about. He yeah. has his, look, Noam, but he, Noam even said that David Noble was more radical than he was. Okay. So Noam had chose, he had made his choices, yep. you could see, okay? Um, so my point is that we were essentially on our own. And Devin was so upset. He said, Shiva, how do you put up with this? And he was one of the most sensitive people. You know, he had to take like a break because he couldn't believe the level of anger. And what were people angry at? Yeah. That's what the issue is. It really takes a toll on you. Well, but what were they angry at? Yeah. They were angry at a couple of things, Marcelo. They were not just angry at the invention of email. They were angry at various things. A that it didn't come out of the military industrial complex, B, it came out of Newark, New Jersey, B, it came from a 14-year-old kid, C, that this Indian guy was not willing to walk away. I wasn't willing to be a good Indian yep. because getting back to the segregation, the Indian is viewed as you shake your head like this and you speak like this, like Deepak Chopra, and then you're acceptable. You can speak about meditation, but you sure can't be a fighter who says F you to them and challenges them. In the middle of this, it gets even more interesting. In 2014, I mean, this, this fight's going on since started in 2012, 13. I mean, this is consuming my life. Yeah. 2014, um, Walter Isaacson, who wrote Steve Jobs' 
biography. He was he Aspen Institute. If you want to talk liberal, put liberal to the power of infinity. That's Walter Isaacson. I mean, he writes a book. Suddenly, a book called Di "Innovators of the Digital Revolution." A big book. Yeah. You know, innovators of the digital revolution. Now, don't you think he would discuss email? Isn't email part of the digital revolution? Email's left out of it. Really, he doesn't. The history of email's left out of it. He talks about Bill Gates. He talks about uh, Sergey Brin. And look at the pictures, all white people. In fact, a white woman. But no mention, there's no person of color. There's no person yellow or black. It's all white people. That look like nerds. <laughs> well, <imagine>. that <laughs> look like yeah. the people, the anointed ones. Yeah, yeah. And more importantly, they're all within the triangle of the military industrial academic complex. Yep. So if you look at a picture of me, which we have about me, I'm a pretty dark looking young kid. You see, when I was at MIT, I was part of that complex. That's why I got, you know, I was, I fit the narrative, put him on the front page, echo mail, boom. But when I said email was created before, I no longer, I have basically rebelled against him. I needed to be spit out. Yeah. And Walter Isaacson in that book says, all great innovations come from that golden triangle. That's what they call it. That's what he says. Well, he's, he's you know, like yeah. the military industrial, that, that triangle. Yeah. So as we're doing, David Crocker, that crock of shit guy, he writes an editorial in the Washington Post. He says, see, no one person could invent email. Like now trying to take this high road. Yeah. It can only occur through collaboration. Yep, like a group effort that yeah, all of us. exactly. And the collaboration he's talking about is a military industrial academic yeah. complex. <laughs> Not the collaboration I'm talking about is a loving family, a mentor, and a dedicated school teacher. Which, and by the way, that same story is Philo Farnsworth. The boy who invented TV, but he was white. You see, so now there's a statue of him and he gets, but it's hard for them to swallow because this is not only a race issue, but also an issue. This was outside of the military. Industry. Philo only had to deal with one, which took him 60 years to get recognition. Now there's a statue of him in Congress. Same thing. He had a mentor. He had a school teacher and he had loving parents in Franklin, Idaho, 600 person town. He saw how the cows did this motion and then he did the raster tubes, he invented TV, RCA came and stole it. He had patents. You'd say you could patent hardware, you can, right? I had my copyright, they stole it. They produced TVs and they ran them into the ground until the 19th year when he won. Patent life is 20 years and he won. Yeah. He died as an alcoholic. My point is he only had to deal with the military industrial academic complex. I had to deal with that and the race issue and the fact it occurred in Newark. So the facts are, Email, the system as we know today, was done by a 14-year-old boy, Shivaya Dure, in Newark, New Jersey, in a very different ecosystem. And the real lesson here, it goes at the heart of what it means to be a human being. You see, at the essence of being a human being is it's about creating. Um, if you believe in the concept of the divine, I, and, you, and if you believe in the founders of this country and you need to be, believe in any spiritual teaching, it's as a soul within each one of us, it's a divine spark of God. And that soul's ultimate expression of its divinity is through creativity, yep. through creation. So when you define a system, these people are the smart people, the priesthood. These people are the shudras or the niggas. As my black friend said, don't use the R, that's okay if you use the niggas, yeah. okay? That's okay, right? Those people should not create. There are, there, they just clean the toilets for us. They can pick coconut trees, which is what Mike Cass was supposed to do. 
Yeah. So you deny everyone else the opportunity to create and you reserve it for the few, the Brahmins, or the people who go to MIT in the military industrial complex. This is a denial of you and your humanity. And the invention of email is not about me, but it's about that 14-year-old boy in Newark, New Jersey, who busted his ass, who came from nothing, who came from a low caste, who represents every other person on this planet who has a right to innovate. That's what the invention of email is really about. And their denial, their hatred, the same hatred that that woman who wouldn't give me that water, the same hatred of my, m m m the, the woman who would shoo-shoo my, my mother as a pig, that's that same hatred. Yeah. And these people are the most racist, hatred, fascist people. And they call themselves liberals, right? They call themselves the intelligent folks who want to help the darkie. They want to help the darkie under their triangle. Yeah. I can be on the front page of MIT when I do things within their control. But when I say email was not done by you and I fight for that, that even bothers him even more. Deepak Chopra is allowed. You see, Gandhi is okay. Shake your head, talk like this, talk about you know, spirituality, yeah. talk about nonviolence. But when you speak aggressively and you get angry, that's not allowed. Yeah. Right? So the invention of email is really about the fact that email A is a system. It's not a reductionist thing of sending. That's why the systems approach is important. It's about the fact that I went through the real American journey of coming from nothing through the process of immigration, through the process of education, through innovation. This is a process that our founders went through. Yeah. And they want to deny that. So the denial of the so that's why it's extremely important to document the truth about the history of email because it's not just about the truth of these it exposes the branding and the viciousness of the multi-trillion dollar enterprise of the military industrial complex which wants to brainwash people to, for us to fuel them because they want us to make us think that you fuel war and you get innovation give us money and we'll give you a cell phone yeah right that's what it's really about. It's fundamentally about humanity and dehumanizing it. Because the truth is that email came out of a civilian application to help these secretaries who were also humans to, go, to give them a gateway into the world of computing. Email was the first consumer application which took a woman in many ways, it's an honor. email would not have been created out of women. My grandmother inspired me, Stella Alexiak, who changed the rules, my mom who did, and those women. Email is a liberation of women in some ways. Yeah. It took the women from the computer, it took the desktop out of a physical space into this etheric space. So you didn't have to physically be in one location. And email is still the killer app. So that's why I think this episode, Marcelo, is a good one to start with. And I know you as a, I mean, you, you know, think politically, you know, uh, I don't know how you're under the age of 40. I think many people in your era may not even know where email came from. Yeah, they have no idea. Yeah. I, until actually reading the 40 page paper, you get a full understanding yeah. of what you, email actually is. Right. You, and what's interesting, you can be a dropout out of Harvard. That's cool. So Bill Gates, by the way, the guy didn't invent DOS. He didn't invent, he stole it from a guy. You know the story of Bill Gates, right? Yeah, this he, is a repeated pattern of right. people. Right, but he gets he. But you can be a dropout of Harvard, but he made gazillions. You see, um, you can be a dropout like Zuckerberg. But the reality is, if I had made gazillions of dollars, they would revere me. Why didn't I make gazillions? And this gets back to politics because the stupid politicians in Congress. It took them until 1994 to recognize that software is a digital machine. 
they thought software was paper, right? If they had appropriately allowed me to patent software in 1980, I'd be make, I'd be a gazillionaire, probably one of the wealthiest guys on the planet. Yeah. Because the protection that copyright gives us for the literal code, it doesn't protect all the ideas I did. Yeah. So this is another important issue about why we need people who actually build things and make things in Congress because these morons in Congress don't understand technology. They don't even understand what they don't even understand Google and Facebook. They don't understand how they're how they don't even understand what laws to create to protect the hypermedia. They don't understand how to protect artists in the world of 3D printing. Yep. There are so many new technologies coming out. The morons in Congress, except probably one out of you know, like a Rand Paul or someone like that, it's it's um, reprehensible what's going on to the representation of the American people. They're, they will, they're not being protected because these people don't even understand the implications of new technologies. Yeah. The only ones that are being protected are the military-industrial complex. Exactly. The special interests of the lobbyists. Exactly. That's, that's all it is. Yeah, so the, so the denial of the invention of email at a fundamental level uh, is a denial. Uh, the, the truth about uh, the invention, the denial of the truth is a denial of every, you yep. and your humanity. And your independence. And your independence. Yeah. The fact is you don't need a lot of equipment. You don't need VC funding. I mean, we should do it. We'll do a whole thing just on how innovation is being farmed, just like genetically engineered foods now. It's being totally controlled. Yeah. You, you, you go to MIT, then you get to go to Kendall Square, then you get your VC funding, then you're an innovator, right? You've got it's to bullshit. be part of the military industry. Right. You got to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I hope uh, uh, you guys have enjoyed this. I hope this was valuable to you. I don't know if there's any other points you want yeah. to bring up. No, I think that, that, that was it. I think we covered yeah. everything. I, I, think the, I think the takeaway from this episode is innovation anytime, any place, by anybody. That's what this is really yep. about. And by the way, you know, we, I created a nonprofit in the middle of this where, called Innovation Core, where I recognize you know, uh, uh, young kids between the age of 14 to 18 who are innovative, not invented, but made something that they've converted that's a, a, an, an invention that they've actually selling or commercializing, getting out to people. Uh, this past year, we recognized four kids. Last year, eight kids. I give them about a thousand bucks and there to mentor them. It's a very small way. It's by no means like the National yeah. Science Foundation. So anyone listening to this podcast, if you know people, go to innovationcore.org. That's um, what we're missing people. Is, is more innovation. From yeah, the yeah that we people, need more right? innovation. We need to spur young local innovators. Yeah. You know, there was a time when the government would say, give people money. Oh, whoever created the fastest aircraft. Now it's all owned and collusion. I'm sorry. Uh, there's, yeah, MIT gets some smart people, but they're not the only smart people on the planet. Yeah. MIT was lucky to get me. You know, I didn't want to go there. Yeah. You know, um, I think it was good I went there because I know the bowels of the hypocrisy of the military industrial complex, how they control narratives, how they have this elite system. Yeah, that was your to, purpose to go That was my to, purpose. To learn that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I learned. Yeah. So it was probably a very valuable thing. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Thank you.